listening to the podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. Welcome to SOAS Radio. You're listening to the academic workshop organized by the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy to commemorate the 17th anniversary of the UN. My paper is titled The Revolt Against the West. Let me get right into it. Between 1945 and 1960, 40 Asian and African countries with populations of 800 million, which was a quarter of the world's population at the time, won their independence in the famous revolt against the West. And this revolt was not just a political one, but also an intellectual one, as freedom fighters from the global south employed liberal Western idioms of self-determination to overthrow an unjust international order. The death knell was finally sounded on the notorious European legal concept of colonial territory being declared terra nullius. Washington's Monroe Doctrine had also sought to keep European powers out of its hemisphere. Latin Americans and Caribbeans had suffered decades of Yankee imperialism in places such as Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua and the Philippines, which had all been militarily occupied by the U.S., in an age of gunboat diplomacy. Coming to Africa, Kenyan intellectual Ali Mazrui's idea of a Pax Africana had urged Africans to create, consolidate, and keep peace on their own continent. And in his idea of continental jurisdiction, he sought to keep external cold warriors, the US and Russia, and also France, out of African disputes, while his idea of racial sovereignty regarded inter-African interventions by brotherly African states as more legitimate than those of outsiders. It was also, in a sense, an African Monroe Doctrine of sorts. So Western intervention had colonized much of Africa, Asia, and Latin America and brought them under European sovereignty. In order to protect their sovereignty after gaining political independence, Southern countries thus felt that they needed to ward off further Western interventions into their territories. So after 1945, many looked to a rules-based United Nations to preserve their territorial integrity and independence. They, however, also paradoxically sought to use the world body to conduct military and economic interventions in Africa and Asia in support of liberation struggles in pursuit of their sovereign independence. I argue in this paper that debates on intervention and sovereignty since 1945 can basically be summarized as a tale of two cities, San Francisco and Bandung, and two countries, Rwanda and Libya, all four are symbolic of different phases of these debates. Starting in San Francisco, only 12 Asian and African states out of the 48 were present at the founding of the UN in San Francisco in 1945. And the great powers made clear that there would be no UN without their veto powers, and small states basically had no choice. Uh, They could not challenge this approach. The 19 Latin American countries pushed strongly for an inter-American conflict resolution system that could take autonomous military action and not be subordinated to the UN system. Since these states had actually been victims of US aggression uh, and being the victims of the Monroe Doctrine, it was paradoxical that they were the ones now championing the Monroe Doctrine most strongly. 
But this paradox can be understood in terms of a quest for regime security by governments hiding behind the shield of sovereignty. It was similar to Francophone African neocolonies basically signing defense accords with France that allowed Paris to intervene militarily to protect puppet regimes, or similar to the Soviet Union's relationships with its near abroad in Eastern and Central Europe. The Bandung Conference of 1955 was the effort by the Global South to create new norms of intervention to regain the sovereignty of Asian and African countries. And three titanic figures played a key role in this revolt against the West. India's Jawaharlal Nehru pushed strongly for the creation of the non-aligned movement, championed nuclear disarmament, and used the UN to support Africa's decolonization efforts. His controversial military annexation of the former Portuguese colony of Goa in 1961 helped to legitimize the use of armed force to liberate colonial territories. He, however, failed to condemn his Soviet allies' occupation of Hungary in 1956. Egypt's Gamal Abdul Nasser, the prophet of Pan-Arabism, strongly backed the use of force in conducting wars of liberation in Algeria and Southern Africa, while Ghana's Kwame Nkrumah, the prophet of Pan-Africanism, backed liberation movements with training and material support, and as a fierce champion of non-alignment, sent his troops to the UN mission in the Congo in 1960. He also proposed the idea of an African high command as a kind of supranational army to wage wars of liberation and keep external actors out of Africa. Within the UN, the Global South played an important role as part of the G77 and China. And China, of course, was the only member of the developing world with veto power and permanent membership on issues of sovereignty and intervention. And these states established new concepts in international law in areas related to self-determination, decolonization, and racial discrimination, declaring apartheid to be a crime against humanity. The Rwandan genocide of 1994, the third part of our story, was a watershed event for post-Cold War interventionism in the global south. As Africans realized that the most powerful Western countries on the UN Security Council were prepared to condone the death of 800,000 people, they were forced to strengthen what were weak and fledgling regional organizations such as the OEU and ECOWAS set up to promote regional integration and force them to be security mechanisms. At the start of the Rwandan genocide, southern governments on the council like Nigeria and Brazil urged the council to strengthen and reinforce the 2,500 strong UN peacekeeping mission to use force to protect civilians. Led by strong American and British demands, the council, however, withdrew most of the peacekeepers from Rwanda, leaving a token force of 270. The Bill Clinton administration refused for weeks to call genocide by its name for fear of being pressured to fulfill an international legal obligation. France led a so-called humanitarian intervention that allowed genocidaire that it had trained and armed to escape into the Eastern Congo. So Western acts of omission and commission in Rwanda most graphically illustrated the hypocrisy and double standards 
at the heart of debates on intervention, because what we usually hear is China and Russia are blocking humanitarian action. Based on the trauma of the genocide and other de devastating conflicts, prominent Africans started to advocate the dilution of absolute sovereignty. Unlike the OAU Charter of 63, the AU Constitutive Act of 2000 allowed for interference in the internal affairs of its 54 members in cases of egregious human rights abuses. South Sudanese scholar-diplomat Francis Deng, the intellectual father of R2P, and Amitav's paper deals with this in quite a bit of detail, sought to convince African governments to adapt the continent's changing post-Cold War architecture to protect populations at risk. He argued that in situations of conflicts, countries were so divided on fundamental issues of sovereignty and legitimacy that the validity of sovereignty must be judged by the views of African populations, not those of governments or rebel groups. The two post-Cold War African UN Secretaries General, Egypt's Boutros Ghali and Ghana's Kofi Annan, also pushed for a dilution of sovereignty and humanitarian intervention, as did South Africa's Nelson Mandela. Nigeria launched humanitarian interventions into Liberia and Sierra Leone, South Africa into Burundi and the DRC. But while Africa was forced by necessity to become more interventionist, the rest of the global south remained skeptical, with China, Brazil, India, criticizing US-led interventions into Kosovo and Iraq between 1999 and 2003. In terms of the last section, one should not underestimate the widespread anger across the global south caused by the NATO intervention into Libya in 2011. This intervention was supposedly launched to preempt Libyan le leader Muammar Gaddafi's massacre of protesters in Benghazi, but ended with the assassination of the mercurial dictator in his hometown of Sirte. Both South Africa and Nigeria voted for the Council Resolution on the NATO intervention in Libya. The Zuma administration, later stung by criticisms within the ANC, turned around and, along with their BRIC allies on the Council, accused NATO of having abused its R2P mandate in Libya and firmly opposed a Western repeat of the regime change intervention in Syria. In concluding this voyage that has stretched from San Francisco to Seat, it's important to note that two sacrosanct Cold War, Cold War taboos of the Global South appear to have been broken. Se secession in Eritrea, East Timor, and South Sudan, and UN trusteeship, Somalia, Cambodia, and Haiti. However, Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean have all adapted the Westphalian system of nation-states and largely accepted colonially imposed boundaries, the few exceptions um, where borders have been changed have been done by force. I think Singapore was the only exception where force wasn't used. The Global South has also pushed strongly for UN Security Council reform, as we discussed yesterday. And unless the anachronistic Security Council itself is reformed to reflect new realities of the international order, its legitimacy, already threadbare, will be further eroded. 
The primacy of the UN in maintaining global peace and security is already being challenged by regional bodies like, the U like ECOWAS and the AU, which have taken action and only informed the UN afterwards. Libya could actually represent the death knell of R2P because it's very unlikely that China, Russia and powerful members of the Global South will sanction similar Western-led regime change interventions. I want to end by just noting that as I was completing this paper, it was announced that South Africa was going to start proceedings to withdraw from the International Criminal Court. Just as selective security has led to an erosion of the authority of the UN Security Council, selective international justice could well lead to the demise of the ICC if another revolt against the West takes hold. As with the League of Nations, it is unclear the extent to which both R2P and the ICC will be mourned in the Global South, let alone given a decent burial. My topic to dive straight into is that the South and disarmament at the UN. And to start off with, I want to set this in the context of both the South and disarmament within the Academy, within international relations. And to my mind, that while one can observe that there have been numerous international disarmament agreements since 1945, that uh, for some decades the issues of arms control and disarmament have been uh, public and central in... in Welcome, Bert. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> so, but nevertheless, disarmament barely um, features in the uh, pages of uh, the Academy. Um, we take a, an example of uh, Millennium Journal, um, which uh, we choose for a number of uh, good reasons. It's uh, seen as a progressive, uh, you know, constructivist, uh, if not radical, um, outlet. It has a high uh, turnover uh, of uh, editors, shouldn't say that it would be stuck in the mud because of its rotation of uh, uh, an editorial board of, uh, of students. Um, nevertheless, uh, surveying um, the, the journal since its inception, uh, the issue of disarmament uh, barely features. I think a full-text search of thousands of articles and uh, reviews produces uh, only some 60 references to disarmament. Uh, which I think is a remarkable silence in the discipline. Um, uh, one of my research students a couple of years ago entered into a discussion with the editors by email um, as to why this was. And they said, well, uh, we're, you know, as a radical, progressive sort of journal, we're more likely to uh, feature articles about feminism than about disarmament, which for those of us who grew up on the work of Carol Kern, um, and uh, patriarchy and the, the structures of uh, the nuclear state uh, was slightly uh, ironic, if not ignorant, uh, comment. Uh, 
there may be structural reasons uh, beyond the uh, purview of this paper uh, for that, but it, uh, it's a remarkable silence overall. And there's a comparable lack of attention, um, I would argue, to the South in world politics, a, a topic explored um, rather well uh, by Sally Morford um, in her book of that name. Uh, that despite the uh, uh, tremendous contribution of journals such as Third World Quarterly, that in general, uh, independent Southern agency uh, doesn't appear sufficiently in uh, mainstream international relations. And I think her argument is, is quite convincing. Nevertheless, um, it's, I think it's important for us to realize that uh, in the disarmament processes at the UN, uh, even amongst the superpowers, uh, Southern agency has been uh, concrete um, and sustained on the issues of disarmament. Not, um, uh, uh, it isn't a, an unblemished picture. It represents a contrast, and we'll come to that uh, later. But going back to, uh, at least to Bandung, uh, principles of uh, disarmament, general and complete disarmament, uh, have been and uh, were central to uh, the self-image of the non-aligned movement from its inception, uh, uh, not least as a means of uh, uh, combating um, or uh, seeking to um, engage with the military dominance of the West, of the Northern powers, um, to play to a, a moral audience domestically um, and in the West uh, on, on these issues. <coughs> and this role um, went beyond rhetoric if one looks at um, the succession of arms control uh, disarmament initiatives uh, for example, the uh, a growing number of nuclear weapon-free zones, um, starting off with the uh, Latin American uh, Treaty, uh, Pacific uh, uh, Treaty, causing considerable uh, confrontation between uh, New Zealand, which was playing to its role uh, as a, a bridge state between the global north and south. Um, they even you know, had a boat blown up by the French. Um, as uh, part of that process, um, some of us may remember. Uh, the Free Zone uh, Treaties formed one part of the process. There was also deep southern uh, engagement in the international campaign, which led to the uh, atmospheric test ban of the early 1960s, when there was global concern about um, what in the north and the south, in the levels of radiation starting to uh, appear in cow's milk and the rest. Uh, and the backdrop of this was a, a real sense that uh, a thermonuclear war um, in the north would um, have the south as its collateral damage. Uh, and that while the south wasn't a direct actor in any of this, it would be uh, the victim of it uh, along with the populations of the north. And this uh, engagement of, of southern states with particularly with Western political and public opinion on these issues was a, a feature of international politics through the 60s, 70s and, uh, and 80s. 
in the post-Cold War period, Southern Agency, and we had the pleasure of being hosted by Costa Rica in a meeting we organized on disarmament in the UN a couple of days ago, um, a Southern Agency um, was uh, critical both in the demands for uh, restrictions on such issues as uh, landmines, um, cost munitions, attempts to restrict the trade in small arms, and finally the arms trade treaty, that there were uh, coalitions of uh, southern states and populations, uh, northern, some northern states and northern NGOs engaged in um, all of these um, initiatives. Of course, that is only one side of the story. And I think uh, we'll have, when, I, when we look for theoretical explanations of um, uh, a dissonance perhaps best uh, exemplified by uh, Nehru, who on the one hand, uh, certainly up until the war with China, had uh, um, an immense uh, international uh, moral prestige as an anti-imperialist, a supporter of post-nationalism um, even, uh, but he nevertheless, uh, as a political leader, uh, embarked on India's nuclear program. Uh, and this, uh, this tension um, one sees both in northern politics but also in, in southern. I think, from a theoretical perspective, uh, the, the late works of, of Morgenthau, uh, to my mind, put this uh, uh, at its clearest, uh, where he argues in his late work that he's rarely, I have to say, taught in the academy uh, for reasons I don't understand, or which are perhaps all too obvious, uh, whereas politics and power is on every reading list, uh, his later works are not um, for undergraduates uh, or indeed postgraduates. Because he argues there that uh, in general states have engaged with the, as it would he calls, the wrong horn of the dilemma, seeking to uh, accommodate uh, nuclear weapons into traditional forms of state and power politics uh, rather than understanding with Einstein that, uh, and many others that the advent of, uh, of nuclear weapons requires the adjustment of society and state practice to their uh, existential threat um, and one sees that played out, so on the one hand you have the processes which I described uh, already and then you have uh, the pursuit of uh, arms, uh, interstate war between India and Pakistan, a pursuit of nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction uh, by states in the third world, and a number of uh, crises between um, the US and uh, if, when it can rally it, the UN Security Council, uh, on the one hand, and the so-called rogues, North Korea, Iraq, um, and Iran. If we look at the present day, these have come together in uh, quite a, uh, I would say, remarkable uh, watershed, which is the uh, international agreement with Iran on its nuclear program. Um, one might argue that this uh, emanates from uh, the Obama administration's uh, desire to have Shia balancing against the Sunni uh, Wahhabist uh, regimes of the southern Gulf. Um, 
or one might argue that on both sides there was an understanding uh, of Morgan Fowler's point uh, that unless we adjust, we end up in a conflagration, um, and that neither party really wanted to contemplate um, a full-scale military uh, a war. Um, and despite many attempts and countless failures, and in a small way, SOAS and Pugwash here for half a dozen years, we held public-private workshops of Iranians and Israelis and Arabs on this issue, uh, as Steve Chan encouraged me to do when I first came here. Um, in the end, we have ended up with a, 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 a remarkably coherent agreement, um, perhaps uh, moving to the positive uh, horn of, of Morgan Thal's dilemma. Um, in SOAS, we've been look, working with southern states and others to see how we might, uh, as it were, revitalize and make more practical the um, original um, southern demands of Bandung for general disarmament and the discussions we've been having with um, uh, partners, um, Costa Rica notably and others, uh, have in short order led us to uh, offer the proposition that whereas time of uh, Bandung and uh, subsequent uh, Soviet and American proposals playing to a southern and northern public opinion, uh, there was no um, practical basis for considering global disarmament. That isn't the case now. Uh, that if one looks at the, and I won't uh, go into detail for reasons of time, but if one looks at the technical provisions of the arms control and disarmament agreements across the spectrum of conventional and WMD over the last 20 to 30 years, they provide pretty much all the technical provisions necessary for uh, global disarmament. And bringing this forward, and as the Costa Ricans argued um, uh, a couple of uh, days ago, now we have a treaty to control the trade in all forms of weapons. Making it stick is, of course, not a question, but we have a treaty now on all forms of weapons trade. We now need an, to build on that to control uh, the possession uh, of all forms of weaponry uh, by armed forces. So that is our, our uh, analysis and uh, theoretical background, but also our practical uh, policy contribution to um, engaging with the Global South on these issues. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, and I thank Tom and the colleagues for a chance to work on the starting uh, session. My paper is on the Arab League, um, and I will try to ever so briefly give you the highlights of it. Um, so that we can discuss the issues. I start with uh, with two two issues. I start with a moment in the middle of the 20th century when the organization was set up, but also with a disconnect uh, at the time that all of the debate uh, that you were describing is taking place. Uh, it seems that uh, three questions arose as I was working with this. Why so little presence of the Arab League itself? Not the Arab world, mind you, and I'd like to insist on the difference throughout this uh, in this debate, whose agency and what dynamics agency fundamentally are we looking at? And I start by illustrating this gap uh, in the article with the story, if you recall, those of you that have seen the Battle of Algiers, um, and halfway through the film, halfway through the events in 1957, the FLN asks the Algerian population to hold on to um, the attacks, to understand that they're holding on to the attacks 
and going for the strike, the general strike as such. And as they're hiding in the Kasbah, one of the members stops by and asks one of his colleagues, do you know why we're doing this? Um, and this is a low-level militant. And he turns to him and he readily says yes to actually make the point to the UN, right? And I was struck by the presence of that phrase, that reference within the militantism, the violence. We're talking about a group that is engaging in violence at the time as such. And with that, I started looking, basically working backwards and trying to understand what was happening in relation to this. The second point is that most of the literature on this issue is actually quite um, absent. There is not much. During that phase, most of the work on the region focuses on either post-colonial struggles, most of it, understandably, and I'm talking about 1920 to 1950. Um, Post-colonial struggles, as I said, the Palestinian question, of course, and all of the developments in the Gulf and in the Levant, uh, the emergence of Arabia and uh, the Mashiach the more generally and the Maghreb as such. And so I make three arguments in the paper. The first one is that, all in all, the articulation of a full understanding of universalism, and we can discuss what that means, was not fully unpacked by the Arab League when it had an opportunity to do this during those debates during that period of time. Secondly, and paradoxically, the United Nations over the next few decades, uh, throughout the 70s and up to now, and in fact increasingly, has not been absent, in fact, in the processes and the engagement of the League itself. Quite paradoxically, it's been much more of a reference and a partner to the League, the leaders of the League as such. And again, I stress the difference between the populations that are supposed to be represented. Paradoxically, finally, the more the League engaged in such work, the more it generated, begat, sub-regionalism within it. So that by the end, of, by the time we get to the Syrian crisis, you have had many uh, crises, dossiers, issues dealt with either by the GCC, or by one of the key actors, and within the league itself, you ended up having a bit of a hollow uh, entity uh, by its own doing, would be uh, the argument as such. So the league, so the paper is then structured around those three sections. Uh, the first section look at uh, the birth of the league itself, 1945. There's a few interesting things that five, six countries at the time um, are independent. Um, Egypt, Iraq, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Syria and Transjordan, which will become Jordan shortly. Yemen, in its own way, joins very rapidly a few months later. So you have six out of ultimately the 22 Arab countries, 21 Palestine, 22 Arab countries that are there, which is important, the numbers you gave in terms of the representation in San Francisco, but only one-third of what the Arab League will ultimately be. And secondly, it's particularly a Mashriqi type of representation, except for Egypt, which is uh, Egypt, the rest of it is very much in the east, the Mashrib as such. Very little presence of North Africa, the Maghreb, and all the others. And that is important because it sets already a dynamic of the Arab League into this power play, power games, particularly as the Mashrib will come to be the Gulf oil-rich countries, and Saudi Arabia, and this is really the elephant in, in this room, will ultimately become the key leader and the key uh, actor within the League itself. So, the, out of that, one could see that this key formative period, 45 to 55, let's say, um, and NASA will come to play a key role into this uh, shortly, is when the dynamics of the league are defined, 
materialize, but also ossify. In many ways, there is kind of a, um, it's in the process where it's stunned in the beginning into that logic, and it has stayed with it. It has not been able to move organically out of this, in spite, as I said, of the intensifying diplomatic exchanges with the United Nations and so on. Out of this, of course, comes the other argument, which is about the emphasis on the elitist nature of the league, the leader, uh, the leaders of it, the importance of the summit. Um, as early as 1962, it becomes the key referential within all of the activities, so that the, uh, the Secretary General is only implementing what the heads of state decide when they meet. And up until today, it has become very much led by that logic as such. Which leads, of course, to, and this is my second point, as I mentioned earlier, to a gradual absence from this debate, the Bandung type, uh, the third world debate, and beyond, I would argue, also the more universalist UN-led opportunity to engage in that as such. As I said, Nasser plays a key role, but Nasser is really playing his own cards. He's, and in many ways, he's playing other cards, third world and African. You mentioned Kruma very close to that, a lot of engagement, but he's not necessarily putting forward the Arab League project as such uh, in relation to this. So this is the specificity. The other specificity of the League itself has to do with its very nature uh, in the landscape of international organizations. Uh, so I say here that most of these other regional organizations have either a universal basis or a geographical one. In the case of the Arab League, it's a, or a religious one, an organization of Islamic uh, cooperation, you have here reference to a shared culture and language. And that is very, almost unique in this sense, because what you do have is reference to language and culture. Culture, of course, is even more, uh, has more elasticity. Uh, but language is specifically what is referred to. And I recall the story here in 94, when there's a bit of detente, and Shimon Peres is asking the former Secretary General of the Arab League, Asmat Abdel Magid, so when will we, Israel, join the Arab League? To which Abdel Magid responds, the day you decide to speak Arabic. So it's interesting because it tells us one thing. This was on the record in a meeting at Casablanca, to which, by the way, Paris was invited as an observer. So I speak of the time. There was a bit of that at the time. But it points us for us the, the importance of the League as an, the expression of an identity. Um, but that very point is where I see this kind of two-edged sword so that the challenges of establishing an Arab nationalist, and Arab nationalism is the, the, the subtext of it, to which I'm going to a moment, the, the, uh, the project of pushing forward that as a response to colonial dynamics in a post-colonial phase sets very much the limit of engagement with the rest of the world, and including within the third world. And um, I mentioned, for instance, very limited engagement with the African Union, and before that, the organization that the African Union as such. Again, there's plenty of paradoxes or rather nuances that have to be brought in. There is uh, participation by Egypt, Iraq, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, and Syria in the deliberations of San Francisco, as I mentioned. Famously, the re Lebanese representative Charles Malik makes some contributions that are interesting, trying to go beyond some of the definitions of human rights as one would expect within the region, talking about uh, all manners of, of individual freedoms over the social group, which I find particularly innovative, if not uh, revolutionary, coming from uh, that time and that place. But very quickly, Palestine, Algeria become the lead stories in the region, understandably. Um, 
All, all the same, for the purposes of this discussion, I note that the organization had had a moment to advance a vision, but whether it was the legacy of the inward-looking Arab nationalist movement or the influence of its own making of the, the league, the prevalence of that was very much short change as such. Sovereignty and preventing interference became the logics for the, for the league. How to work with this? Um, and it helped that project that the league was very rapidly, as I said, structured around an Arab summit. So in that context, as I said a minute ago, the main driver behind the organization can be seen to be pan-Arabism, which is a different project. Pan-Arabism uh, anchored in a desire for emancipation born out of the post-Ottoman experience. And I make the point that you can, in many ways, look at the establishment of the league as the coda uh, of the post-Ottoman period uh, during that phase, the unfinished colonial wars in Palestine. Um, but again, how is that to be moved forward by a center, an elitist um, uh, entity whose leaders have essentially on their mind, again, the setup of their own states? This is also something to be kept in mind. These are states that are being born. They are, they are embryonic. They are still fighting with all manners of structures around them, tribal, uh, communal. Uh, definition of boundaries, all of those post-colonial issues are on the minds of these actors as they have all of a sudden, um, and I say all of a sudden because again 1945 is very early for this process maybe a bit too early actually this entity that, that they could mold but they're not molding it into an inter integrative cooperation uh, framework as such second part of this moves to what emerges logically which is the, uh, the rise of the security concerns those actors against this setup move away from this debate that I mentioned, missing on an opportunity, this is my argument, uh, to prioritize the security logic um, and interventions as early, of course, as in the 1960s in the Yemen, in the 70s in Lebanon, and increasingly uh, over the past 30 years in three key moments, uh, the 1991 Gulf War, the intervention in Libya, and recently the partnership with the United Nations in Syria. Again, this takes us to the other part of the discussion, which is that all the time, engagement with the UN as an organization, or rather the security components of the UN, was increasingly their present joint missions. Syria, again, Syria is formally incidentally a joint mission in uh, 2012, if you recall. Um, but the partnership is focused on military operations. And so I'm back to this paradox of an in which I say that in institutionally weakening itself, the Arab League has paradoxically set itself for a proliferation of parallel and sub-regional fora, which rendered conflict resolution even more arduous for it, um, what Marco Pinfari has called the forum shopping logic. So you shop within your own organization for who's going to lead on this, whether it's Algeria, whether it's Libya, whether it's Saudi Arabia, and so on and so forth. In the latter part of the, the paper, I look at what takes place after 9-11 and after the Arab Spring. After 9-11, there is engagement, of course, on the security aspect. The securitization of everything is very much enthusiastically latched on by the Arab League, uh, which develops, starts developing some entities having to do with counterterrorism and so on. But the key issues there are absent from the League. And here, I'm struck by the fact that the most interesting work on the questions of human security, on the questions of women's and human rights, of engagement of 
uh, good governance came from the Arab Human Development Report, which was a civil society-led uh, project in which Arab scholars from all over the region, um, and I'm welcoming actually, we were talking with Tom Baghet Korani, who's leading on the latest edition next week to present it in, in Geneva. Um, that project, which quite frankly was quite rich and quite innovative, came outside of the league and not from within an entity that could have led on this as such. So this is the first telltale sign in the 2000s. And then, of course, after the, the post-Arab Spring, we see it trying to adapt. But as I say, to move overnight beyond a mere club of presidents was no easy task for uh, the Arab League, and particularly when it's had the particularly dynamic and, and, and depth Amr Musa was going to run for uh, president of Egypt as, uh, at the time. And so the league was moving to try to organize itself um, after having been led by Musa for a good 10 years. Um, but in the last, last part uh, of this, I examined the engagement on the attempt to rehabilitate it itself vis-a-vis -vis its populations, the Arab uh, states. But it does that, the Arab citizenry, and, and, and at the same time, the global one. And it does this on three fronts. The 2012 Palestinian bid for statehood before the United Nations, the Libyan crisis, and the Syrian war. And yet here, linking it to my previous point, we find that each one of these matters was led by specific actors and not by the League. The Palestinian question was championed by Saudi Arabia. Surprisingly, at the time, if you go back to 2012, you will find Saudi Arabia presenting it to the General Assembly. And if you recall, um, What's his name? Um, the former ambassador in, in, in London and Washington um, uh, signing two op-eds in uh, the New York Times with a very revealing title, cast to the US, cast a veto, lose an ally. It's quite strong language by Saudi Arabia to the United Nations about this issue. So you have Saudi Arabia championing the, uh, the bid for statehood uh, as Turkey Faisal, is, uh, the gentleman's name, the Libyan crisis is led on by the GCC, which formally adopts the resolution before taking it to the UN. And Syria, of course, was a response by the Arab League to the UN's own initiative on this, uh, taking it forward. So on all of these, you don't see necessarily the League moving forward as much as uh, either going to sub-regional fora, as I said, or key actors, or bandwagoning on the issue of taking um, that with the United Nations. So I close the paper with conclusions about the fact that we could have had an opportunity with the near simultaneous birth of both the League and the UN in the 1940s to have that concomitance provide common ground in which the merging of worldviews could have been pushed forward, while of course taking into account the fact that the advancement of the Arab emancipation goals of the time in all the context that you were describing had the logical priority for the populations and for the leaders. Yet, by so rapidly switching into a security logic, the League has, and by, of course, and I don't uh, belabor this point, having a portrait of efficiency and governance and, 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 and democracy, by missing on that sustained engagement, I think that what you see is an entity that has, uh, by its own doing, limited itself to a sense of exceptionalism which I think is the fundamental contradiction vis-a-vis -vis the notion of, of universalism and, and the agency. Um, uh, I stress again the fact that contrary to the common perception, the League did engage with the UN on many of the operations that I mentioned, 
but it did so in replaying that security game and echoing concerns that were not necessarily its concerns, but, but coming from elsewhere and the different projects that were uh, developed as such. All in all, I close with the statement that the subsequent management of that ideal, that is the overall vision that I was hoping to see in such an experience, or that many Arabs were hoping to see, has so far kept that promise of an integrated multilateralism with other cultures, with other uh, projects, elusive um, in an increasingly polarized world in region as such. Well, when I went through the papers last night, uh, my first reading was very, very much. It would be a very, very difficult task. And I must say I very much enjoyed uh, reading the papers. So Shahid is going to have a very, very good uh, special issue of Third World Quarterly, for instance. Uh, but I do want to problematize some of the points that have been made in the papers. And it's the same point that I've been making to a parallel project in international relations theory led by people like Lily Ling and Pina Wilken. And Amitav has been involved in that as well, of course. And that is when in that particular effort, intellectual effort, authors talk about worlding as if they were an alternative world, or alternative worlds, plural, to the Western Westphalian world. One has to be very, very careful that one does not fall into generalities and forms of essentialism. And I remember having this very, very discussion some decades ago with the founder of the book called the Altaf Koha. He was a very, very young man then, and Altaf was running two journals, Third World Quarterly as an academic vehicle, and South as a more popular vehicle uh, to do with Southern issues. I remember sitting in his very, very high office in New Zealand House overlooking Trafalgar Square and simply saying to him, perhaps very naively as a young man, you can't sustain this. And I didn't mean financially, although there were all kinds of backstories to that. But what is the South? What is this third world? If you start generalizing a great mass of very, very different <coughs> nations and states with very, very different ambitions, then the effort at this kind of massing of different opinions into a common world position is, in the end, going to do a disservice to the very agendas that people are trying to put forward. And I still carry that out as a warning signal to this day. Uh, let me say a few things about each of these papers, and the problematization that I have of each of them is precisely based on essentializing the South into a homogenous grouping. Now, in fact, Mohammed's paper seeks very, very hard to avoid that because it's talking about sub-regionalism and sub sub-actors within the Arab League. So there's not just a homogenous Arab League, for instance. But you can certainly make the same kind of claim for the African Union. You can certainly make the same claim about nuclear free zones in the South Pacific, for instance, and in Latin America. So let me come to all of that. I just want to say a word by way of beginning, however, about the San Francisco conference that established the United Nations. And that is, if you look at the work of someone who's not been mentioned around this table, the Australian ambassador to that particular conference, John Burton. And I think that there is a not very often appreciated history of what Burton did on behalf of so-called smaller nations, that is, not members of the great powers that emerged from World War II, to try to give as much flesh as possible to the General Assembly as opposed to the Security Council. 
The Security Council might well have been even more powerful than Vito and other rights had it not been for Burton. I think the Finnish academic Dario Barrienen is the only one to have written about what Burton did on that particular occasion. But I think he should be brought back into the script that was not just developing small nations, but other small nations that thought very, very strongly about a world dominated only by great powers. When we do talk about the effort of, for want of another term, developing nations to influence the world agenda, then I think we've got to be very, very careful and not to create our own romance about what some of these gatherings actually gave rise to. I agree absolutely that Bandung was a pivotal moment. I don't think anybody could deny it. I think that the principles that arose from Bandung absolutely set the stage for a whole ethos of approaches to international relations. I'm very well aware that the Chinese Prime Minister, Zhao Enlai, articulated in a very, very clear and quite elegant form exactly what these ethical principles towards international relations should be. But I'm also aware, of course, as I think Dan mentioned in passing, that China and India later went to war. And it was a very, very bitter war, the consequences of which have not been fully eradicated. And here you have two key actors in the formation of what became the non-aligned movement who are unable to submerge their differences on a bilateral basis, giving rise to all kinds of questions about what the multilateralism of a group like the non-aligned movement meant. When you talk about other great figures within the NAM, people like Tito, for instance, and here I suppose there is some familial uh, background information since my, uh, how do I put this, grandfather-in-law was Tito's chief of strategy in the struggle against the German occupation. So the family was very, very close to the Yugoslav leadership of that day. And my impression is that Tito was absolutely obsessed, not so much with the idea of non-alignment, but with the idea of forming a bulwark against the encroachments of the Soviet Union, so that it would be an independent type of socialism within Yugoslavia. And of course, building bridgeheads to the west, so that Yugoslavia was the only associate member of the OECD, for instance. He played it every which way he could. And the NAM was only one of those things. So what I'm trying to get at is that the different agendas that lead to what seem to be a common position uh, need to be taken into account here. Uh, I do think it's very, very easy to make generalizations without looking at fuller pictures. So one danger is making generalizations when there are specific agendas. The other is to make generalizations that then can be problematized when you look at even larger agendas. Uh, so I was struck by Ade's concluding comments, for instance, about the possibility of South Africa withdrawing from the ICC. And I agree, if you look at the ICC in isolation, then of course there's an overwhelming bias against African uh, leaders, African heads of government, other senior figures. When, however, you look at the total architecture of international justice and international tribunals, and you add in, for instance, something like the special tribunals for former war crimes in the former Yugoslavia, far more white men have been indicted before these international tribunals than black men. When looked at in that totality, in other words, a greater generalization submerges the efficacy of a smaller generalization, which all the same is all kinds of specific sub-organizations. 
At that point in time, I think we start making progress and we recognize that we're not creating a romance. We're looking at things with huge forensic detailing and often forensic embarrassments for the ethical and ideological and historical declaratory discursive positions that we're wanting to put forward. If I could just say something about Dan's paper. Uh, I agree that Millennium is a journal of a certain sort. Uh, I write for it a lot myself, precisely because it's a journal of a a certain sort. But I think that it's in some ways a, a straw man in your analysis, because if you were to take other journals, for instance, cooperation and conflict being very, very much to the fore, but the Review of International Studies, International Studies Quarterly, World Politics, you would find a far greater range of articles and commitment to having articles on questions of arms control, disarmament, and that kind of thing. Uh, so Millennium is very much set up to be a discursive, critical, constructivist type of organ. It developed that way very, very much almost in a, a tradition of LSE international relations at a key point in time of the International Relations Department at LSE. So I'm not sure that it's the very best example to use. Now having said that, I did say at the outset of my comments that when you look at things like the Latin American nuclear-free zone, and you look at the South Pacific nuclear-free zone, then you are looking at very, very different constructions for very different reasons. I mean, I'm a very, very great admirer of Oscar Arias. I think that he was not only a great man, a great diplomatic figure, a great writer as well, 30 books to his name, for instance, and if anyone deserved the Nobel Peace Prize, then it was him. But that kind of approach, in the shadow, Latin America in the shadow of the United States, for instance, the background of the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, in the not-too-distant uh, recent history, uh, the need to bring together some kind of cohesion in the face of the legacy of a Monroe Doctrine, which was nuclear-armed. I think that would constitute a set of drivers in Latin America which were absent in New Zealand. And Australia, for instance, if you look at the New Zealand experience, and I went to school with Helen Clark, who later became Prime Minister. Um, we discussed these things quite often as we did uh, nuclear civil emergency drills. Uh, we were told as children to hide underneath the table when the bomb was dropped. And of course, we all realized that uh, you just kissed your ass goodbye. There <laughs> was not going to be any salvation underneath the table. So we all grew up very, very much thinking that there was a great third world war that we were not going to live long, uh, and that gave rise to some hedonism in the South Pacific in the 1960s, for instance. But there was, in the early 1960s, an amazing book which became a bestseller, uh, Neville Shute's book, On the Beach, yes. very, very much a Southern Hemispheric phenomenon. It did make waves here in the North, but in the Southern Hemisphere, this was the book that alerted us to the sheer bleakness of an apocalyptic post-nuclear holocaust future. And the effect of this on the population, I can't think of any other literary title that had such an impact on people's consciousness. And I think it was still in the back of Helen Clark's mind, for instance, in that of her cabinet, when these issues began coming to the fore again, when they finally came to power. But that, again, is a very, very different animation to the one that drove some of that areas forward. So I think some possibilities of differentiation there. In terms of the coda to your paper, the recent deal, what seems to be 
uh, obviously deal between the Iranians and the United States. I'm actually very sorry that the two chief negotiators of the United States and Iran didn't get the Nobel Peace Prize this year. Uh, I think they were very, very much in the running and they would have deserved it. So I absolutely agree that was a very, very significant accomplishment. But I think it has to do not just with a recognition in the part of the United States to do with Shia and Sunni balancing, but precisely the idea of a wider equilibrium. In some ways, it's almost a throwback to Kissinger's diplomacy in terms of an equilibrium established by balancing huge key players that are meant in some way, therefore, to control their own regions and the aspirations of their own regions. Now, in this, of course, what has been accomplished in the agreement signed by someone like John Kerry is to greatly problematize the work of the Arab League, of course. And here you have a great elephant outside the room, Iran. Here you have an Arab League trying to find an elephant in the room, but only having <laughs> sub-centers, as Mohammed pointed out, none of which actually constitutes a fully grown elephant of any sort whatsoever. So I think that what you've got here is progress and perhaps in one part of the world that makes it problematic for other parts of the world. And in terms of the Arab League, I think that you've got to look at that not only as an elitist organization, not only as uh, a cultural uh, organization, uh, you've also got to look at it very much as an economic organization. In other words, the parallels between the Arab League and OAPEC, for instance, uh, petroleum producing countries in that part of the world. Uh, there are all kinds of links and ties that have got nothing to do with a sense of being a key organized part of the South. I agree absolutely with Mohammed. It's very much an elitist, summit-driven type of organization, which only genuflects towards the greater problems of the world and even the problems of the Middle East. I take issue, actually, with how serious Saudi Arabia is about the Palestinian issue, for instance. But that's really a, a separate discussion. If I could just say a few things about Libya, which has come up with uh, a number of the paragraphs in these different papers. Uh, that itself shows a great dereliction in terms of the capacity both of the African Union and the Arab League as entities. Uh, certainly when Jacob Zuma went up to Tripoli to try to negotiate some kind of deal, which no one took uh, seriously in terms of its chances for success, all he was trying to do, and Chris here would understand this very well, was to resurrect a very tired model that his predecessor, Tabo and Becky, had put forward into other uh, diplomatic uh, difficulties. The whole idea of an inclusive government in which Gaddafi would be simply a part. And we're reprising that right now, for instance, in our approaches towards Syria. Uh, but the running in the Libyan crisis has, again, never really been declared. It was the Algerians who, behind the scenes, had a peace deal uh, which would have involved not a unity government, but Gaddafi accepting exile in Algeria. And NATO were very, very closely informed of it at the time. And it was very, very much Gaddafi's refusal to countenance leaving the country. Uh, that was a key feature in the, the latter escalation and the violence in that particular country. So what I wanted to do, I won't labor this point very, very much longer, is very, very much to say it's difficult to take holistic positions. Now, I think we should, on very pragmatic grounds, in terms of building up an alternative discourse, I think the world of international relations has been beset for far, far too long 
uh, hegemonic Western-originated discourse. So any counter-discourse, as far as I'm concerned, is good discourse, provided we don't believe too closely our own hype. Thanks so much, Stephen. That's really useful. Um, I'm going to suggest that other folks get in the conversation before I come back to you at the end. So other... Tom, did we acknowledge uh, today as the UN's 70th anniversary? I thought we'd have a minute silence for the UN's <laughs> demise. Um, is that a proposal? <laughs> no. <laughs> I actually want to build a little on uh, Stephen's point, namely, and it, it, when I got around to your paper, my quote at the end when you say that... Uh, in fact, the Arab League is not part of the global southern logic. Um, one, I, I, it, it, that sort of struck me across the papers of how impossible it is to shoehorn everything into some um, uh, some framework. And this, I, I really, there, I wanted to say two things in relationship to uh, um, Adi, your uh, interpretation of R2P. But before getting there, was the the fact that you leave the Latin American numbers out of this, your look at San Francisco, and I, that, that puzzles me because uh, that makes, I mean, if, if you were doing sheer numbers, you would say the glass is at least half full with uh, 32 of 50 countries, uh, in fact, 64% of the participants were from what's now called the Global South in San Francisco. And to focus so much on the African, Asian, former Yugoslavia dimension uh, of Bandung. So I, I, I'm just puzzled a little by that. Uh, and I'm also a little puzzled by the interpretation of uh, uh, sort of a blanket of the South in relationship to R2P um, because, in fact, once again, if you look at the, the friends of R2P in New York, exactly almost half of the countries are from the south, and if you look at the countries with focal points for R2P, uh, actually 20 of the 50 are in the south. So somehow this uniform description of uh, a southern rejection of the notion, I think, uh, is a little hard uh, to, to substantiate. Um, second, or third, maybe. Um, Bandung. Um, I'm I, I, one of the things I tried to tease out during the intellectual history project of the UN was how important was Bandung, uh, and my impression is that there, we're reading backwards into history as to how dramatic an event it was, um, and because I, I remember two interviews. Uh, one with Jan Prank, uh, who was a young radical and student in the Netherlands. And obviously, the location of the conference was important. And he thought this was, at the time, I really thought this was a, you know, the center of the universe. Da, 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 da. And I asked Brian Urchardt whether anybody on the 38th floor knew what the hell was going on. And he said, absolutely not. We had no idea where it was on the map, virtually. And we were preoccupied with the Chinese shooting down at the American plane. And uh, across the 80 or so interviews I did, the division really was about 50-50 of people who thought it really was important at the time or tried to put themselves back there at the time. 
uh, and those who um, thought she was, it's only subsequently, and Richard Wright, talking about the Afro-American importance in, a, in his own writings, and elsewhere that this became interpreted as a, as a critical event. So I, I'd actually like to hear other people's thoughts on, on looking back into history in, in this fashion. Um, I think I'll just stop there. Others want to jump into the conversation? <laughs> um, I, I was very influenced by your comment on moralism. So, allow me to tell you where I'm coming from. So I've had a five different assignments over 32 years at the UN, and for five years, I was the head of the speechwriting service of the secretary. And the person who influenced me on paper more than anybody else was Hammershaw. Hammershaw was trying to think through and to insinuate in his writings a role for the United Nations. And Hammershaw's <coughs> strategic concept was the United Nations should advance the development of the developing countries. He had others, uh, something. So I'm wondering what Hamshold would think of the papers presented here and the discussion and the issues that you've presented and Thomas presented. And the conference has the theme of then and now. This this conference, then and now. And of course, then is a historical study. What actually took place? And then now I see, if I may say so, I was very, I was very uh, impressed by all three papers presented here today. Uh, I didn't listen to Professor Adibayo's presentation, but I read your papers. So. Now I'm asking myself this question. What do these papers and all of the papers signify for now? And when I was head of the speech writing service in the secretary, whether you're good or bad, you're trying to think as if you're the secretary. And I wrote a lot of nonsense, and a lot of the nonsense <laughs> that I wrote was rejected in Paris the Queer Hours of the Times. I can't get out of this mindset, and this mindset where I'm thinking policy. And my policy thinking is telling me the following the world is in dire predicament. The only instrument we have is the Charter. And the Charter gives executive authority to the Security Council. And the Charter gives, I'll use at least uh, some quasi-executive responsibilities to the Secretary General under Article 99. So I'm, I was born and raised in Guyana, so I think I can, uh, I can be quite open about third world. When I was in the UN political department, I was the political director dealing with Africa, so I studied it a little bit. Um, so I don't. Well, my friends, the third world is not going to help the world's predicament by itself. And so I find myself thinking more and more that we have to, with all of its deficiencies, we have to look to a future in which the Security Council is taking on executive responsibility. And we have to look to the future in which the Secretary General is using his competence under Article 99 to say to the Council, these are the security concerns that I think you ought to be thinking about. There is a, a famous commentary on the Charter of the United Nations edited by Bruno Sima and others. 
and it's now in third edition. I think it came out in 2012. And Ronald Semenala says that when they're commenting on Article 1, Ronald Semenala says, we have to keep in mind that security threats are changing. They're dramatically different now than in the past. And secondly, the Charter only mentions two of these um, uh, methods of approach, collective security and a peaceful assessment of this view. So in other words, uh, this was my first thought. I wanted, to s I wanted to indicate, I wanted to invite reflection on this issue. What is the predicament of the world now? And what are the executive agencies that we have? And for all of its deficiencies and the P5 and whatnot, it's the, Tom, you have a chapter in a book. Uh, David Malone and others edited the book that just I just got it yesterday in the port on the Security Council in the 21st century. And Ian Johnson has a piece on, I read it last night, but Ian Johnson has a piece on the Security Council and international law, etc. So anyhow, I, I made that point. Can I end uh, with your point on, on Bandung, if I may so? For whatever it's worth, I finished earlier this year BA uh, in history at the University of London with the, in, the international program. <laughs> and so, it's a long and I did for I, I, I had to do a research paper and I did a double course called um, China and the US during the Cold War and uh, I wrote the paper called Sino-American Preventive Diplomacy during the Cold War and there my dear Tom perhaps the most significant um, perhaps the most significant uh, historical input of Bandu was Joe Lai's presence there Mm. And Joe and I signaling, making statements of right. a policy and signaling we're ready to defuse the Taiwan crisis. Right. Yeah, Steve. Yeah, I'd just like to echo a couple of things that, that Stephen said about the papers in general, and obviously everyone says something about um, Amitabh and Adriana's. Um, one is not to reify the West at the time either. So in 1945. So there is no West in 1945. The US project is very different from the European project. The US is trying to decolonize the world, potentially in order to recolonize it for itself in its own particular way. But you know, there's a huge amount of unhappiness in the United States about the British and the French and their plans for their colonies. So there is really no West in that sense. Um, Dan, you, you don't look at the Baruch plan, but when you read about the Baruch plan, it's extraordinary. The Americans seriously discussed giving their nuclear technology to the United Nations briefly before the Cold War really bit. You know, we can't imagine that world now. So this was, it was a very different world at um, this time. At some of the uh, conference I went to recently on economic and social rights, the US was heavily engaged in discussing economic and social rights in the late 1940s. It was serious. Some of the language in the final covenants comes straight out of the United States, which again is unthinkable today. So, so there's something much more fluid going on there than just the West and the rest. And of course, one of the main things is the first time the United States is feeling its way as the hegemonic state in the international system. Vacated the space in the 1920s and 1930s. Suddenly it's got half the world's GDP, it dominates the international system, and it has to work out what to do with, with, with all of this. So I think some context like that is, is important. And one of the chapters I found missing here was, um, was a League of Nations into the United Nations chapter. Because this story starts 
you know, around the First World War, the breakup of some of the empires around the First World War. And many of the agencies that were established by the UN after 1945, of course, have their lineaments in the League of Nations about refugees, about um, uh, social and economic affairs, and the South is heavily involved in the League of Nations. But you know, the experience of Japan in the League of Nations is central to what unfolds in the 1920s and the 1930s. So, so the first thing is don't reify the West in the same way that we would push back against the West reifying the <coughs> The second thing is, is particularly for Abby in relation to the ICC, which is um, African states were among the most vocal supporters of the ICC originally. Mussolini was the first person really to kick the ICC off in terms of an active case and invite the ICC to get involved. But again, we mustn't lose sight of the degree to which many African leaders instrumentalised the ICC very effectively to deal with very awkward problems. Many of those cases are whether it's Cote d'Ivoire, DRC, um, Uganda, you have a troublesome opponent, it's quite useful to be able to indict them under the <coughs> ICC and then yeah. it's possible to ship them off to the Hague so you get them out of the way. What's happened, of course, is that a dis- an anti-colonial discourse has got traction in the, in the AU. Uh, Kenya has shown away with, with this and it now has some traction in South Africa as well. But and this leads to my final point, which is we have to disaggregate whatever is being said at the level of the elite and the state from what might be going on generally. So it's another less generalisation point, which I'm going to come to when I talk about Amitabh and Adriana's papers. You know, China is, whether communist or, or not, has been a central player in the Security Council for its entire history. Since 1971, communist China has had a permanent veto in the Security Council. So again, we're in danger, you know, the, the Chinese, as you all know, are the most active opponents of veto reform within the Security Council. So if we're talking about the South, I'm putting China in the South, China's playing a game that the United States absolutely recognises and many of its own citizens wouldn't. And unless we disaggregate that, putting the Chinese government in the South, I think, is, you know, we need a harder-headed political analysis of the way in which Southern governments use these discourses and their strategic positions effectively. And it seems to me that China is a central part of the global governance architecture and is tremendously powerful. I'm going to have the political economist, so, so pardon me if I get some international information theory wrong. Or, or, um, but this just, just comes from uh, a more political institutionalist sort of framework. You, you discussed Bandung and you know, that the opinions were 50 50, and I think. The 50 on the other side, which hold that Bandung was really seminal and something really important, I mean, it's always a history, in hindsight, it's 2020. So you, you do look back and look at Bandung as something being very, very important for very obvious reasons of, of southern agency. And again, having, having you know, spent most of my childhood in India, the discourse that we learn, whether we agree with India's role in the Northern Eye movement or not, the fact that Bandung was very important as an inflection point, even within India's domestic politics, you leave alone what you know the kind of ramifications it had internationally. I think you know sets up the fact that Bandung was indeed very important. If San Francisco was important, Bandung was, if nothing else, equally important. You know, uh, that's that's just one sense that I think gets um, perhaps not so much a part of the Western discourse, but certainly is a big part of uh, the uh, Southern uh, discourse, really. And uh, that's Bandung on the table. The other that I wanted to talk about is, and I've had this. We discussed quite a lot that the U.S. was 
very magnanimous post uh, uh, the Second World War. But I sometimes wonder if it's not the magnanimity of the victor. The U.S. could afford to be very magnanimous at that point in time. It could afford to uh, share nuclear technology because it was victorious. And it obviously won't do it today because the stakeholders in that arena are much you know, they're bigger, they're tougher, they're very in your face. So the U.S. really can't afford that, that, uh, that kind of um, liberalism, if I, if I may put it that way, which is why it was a particular moment in time. The global distribution of power was such. If I can call it a global political settlement in, 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 in the uh, mid-1940s, that the U.S. was actually able to drive through uh, a lot of uh, uh, the change, uh, you know, the architecture of the U.N. and, and, and the, the language that it wanted to use uh, in the Charter. And, and the U.S. position has since sort of diffused into the Western position because, you know, Europe then, then sort of looked to uh, the U.S. As, as the hegemon. So those, those are just two very broad points, observations that, that I'd, I'd like to make. Uh, Dan, to your paper, and you know, this is a discussion that we've always had, which is, you know, when we're talking about general disarmament, you know, arms trade treaty, chemical, uh, uh, you know, uh, weapons ban, uh, I think there are still two significant problems, just our, our coffee discuss discussion with the coffee, India and Pakistan, and really India in that uh, uh, entire discourse. I think one of the main sticking points of the entire nuclear disarmament, uh, uh, you know, discourse is that. India just stays out, sticks out as a sore thumb. The, the, the uh, one to three agreement, the Hyde Act, not not uh, you know the entire um, access it has to the nuclear supplies. So all of that, you know, whether you want to take it on board or not, is something that's it, it probably needs to be a little more critical of the Indian position. I mean, a lot of people will say China went nuclear, so India didn't have a choice. And uh, this is something that I heard over dinner last night that apparently the United Kingdom was asked by the, uh, by the Americans in the 1960s to offer Indian nuclear protection, which was never going to work. India was an ex-colony of Britain, never going to happen. But it's still <coughs> sorry, a dynamic which needs to be marked in some, and a nod also to the fact that the uh, uh, landmine ban treaty still remains very problematic. That's, that's again, uh, an area which probably needs to be highlighted as a critique. But you know that. We've, we've talked about it. Uh, that those are really uh, just just one point, Mahmoud, about uh, you know when you uh, also picked up the fact about Saudi Arabia and Palestine. My reading is was it more of you know fact of getting around the Hamas Hezbollah uh, uh, you know uh, dynamic there and working with the PA rather than just being interested in Palestine because we've known traditionally Saudi Arabia has never been their biggest champion you know, despite being the leader of uh, the Arab world in that sense. So that was a point that I had to make. I just uh, reflecting to a comment that uh, Weenie made last night, uh, that aspect of uh, responsibility that should be under UN mandate increasingly being chipped away by the proliferation of uh, new forms of what you call southern multilateralism. And I have attended several of them, but Monday begins the, the fourth uh, uh, India-Africa forum. Uh, the Chinese have the China, the Forum for Africa. None of the principles of uh, Bandung appears in this new conversation. Completely very different uh, planet that we're in and how much it has gone. It's just, uh, uh, so in a sense, there's a different kind of multilateralism is emerging, mm -hmm. but completely 
cleaned out of any of the spirit and principles and values of the, the Bandu uh, conference. So, so Tom, let me just make um, you know, a, a couple of observations. Thanks for the opportunity. I mean, just to reaction to what Farid is, is saying. Right? So yes, we could focus on Bandung, we could ask questions about um, how, how big and relevant um, a moment it, it really was and try and reflect on its relevance um, you know, 30, 40 years later. But I think we have to also look at different iterations of southern formations as we go along. Fundy, you just mentioned um, Africa-India, the Afro-India summer. Then there's Foke. Yes. Also happening again um, in December uh, in South Africa. Even though the, spur the, the particular points about Bandung might not be found within, you know, explicitly stressed um, within these formations, they all do make points about the need for global yes. transformation, yeah. global yeah. governance reform, and they all seem to zero in on the United Nations. BRICS is not quite the South-South formation, but Russia there, China's role, but all these formations seem to focus on the UN. That's very important. I, I like Steve's, Steve's point, and Tom also talks about, I like the point about the need not to essentialize um, Southern agency. And what would be useful about this journal uh, edition is if we could zero in on and, and have attempts to explain to us the moments and times when the South act in unison and when there are divergences among Southern states. And the Libya case is a case in point. It's three African states, whatever the motives were, to vote in favor of those two UN resolutions, 1970-1973. It's three key African states, Nigerians and Africa included, which ultimately undermined the African Union's own position uh, at the UN. And these were the states who then afterwards um, cried, cried wolf and cried foul. So I think it's important to stress when states act together um, and give expression to Southern solidarism and agency, and when almost you have um, signs of unilateralism, going in alone, diverting and going against the grain of the pack. So I'm certainly looking forward to papers that would give us in-depth analysis of, of Southern agency and uh, Stevenson problematizing it. That, that's what I'm looking forward to. Thanks. Interesting, I was going to say, the, um, at least in my interpretation of 1973, the, the, the regional meaning, Arab Islamic Conference, GCC, unison, uniformity, support, was a huge factor in explaining the Chinese uh, abstention on that. Um, because it's always been a Chinese position, actually, that the region knows best. Uh, and uh, it seems to me that, that this was at least an important part in explaining, I, I, what I would have said is that the cost of non-compliance <laughs> if they had vetoed the resolution, so I think that's uh, Kissinger, in his book on world order, he um, has a formulation, something along the way. Is it the superstructure of rules and principles that is decisive by words? Or is it, are, it are, are geopolitics operating under an umbrella of rules and principles? 
Uh, what, uh, my turn, I left Kissinger now. <laughs> uh, my rendition would be <clears throat> the world needs the superstructure of rules and principles. The charter, even things like Bandung, even this outdated, because we all need our own folklore as well in terms of rules and principles. But at the same time, underneath that, there will always be this, this politicking. Um, so somehow or the other, uh, we need to find a way of um, advancing global security. Well, bearing in, Ian Brownlee, who was my PhD examiner many years ago, uh, Ian Brownlee in the sixth edition of his book on public international law, he has something there where he's saying that the United Nations is a system of public order, and even though it functions inefficiently, it still is this indispensable system that we have. So what, what I'm basically saying is that I think we have to hold on to the superstructure, or maybe that's not the right word, the scaffolding, sorry. that's the word that gets me used, the scaffolding. We have to hold on to the scaffolding, while at the same time understanding that um, there would be the geopolitics there. But unless we hold on to the scaffolding, we've lost something. Thanks very much. I think really useful comments. Um, this issue of essentializing, first of all, I think is the most important. I mean, you've set up a special issue on the UN and the Global South, and then you're talking about essentializing the Global South, which is a bit funny. So we have to aim at what we've been given, I think. But I think what I noted in the paper, or tried to do, is that, of course, there are many divisions and contradictions in the global south. Of course, some of the countries have joined the nouveau riche and are not at the same level that they were at at 1945. But, and obviously, there were NAM countries that had foreign bases. There were NAM countries that basically relied on foreign powers and defense treaties to keep themselves um, in power. All of that, I think, I at least try to nuance and acknowledge. But I think they did define themselves in a particular way and set up an organization in the non-aligned movement to act collectively and collaborate on specific issues like apartheid, like decolonization, like Palestine, like the new international economic order. So I think there's enough there to at least look at while nuancing... Um, while nuancing the divisions uh, between these countries. Um, the other point I think is important to note is um, I also tried to focus on individual countries so that it wasn't just looking at the third world as a whole, but I picked what I thought were some of the leaders, like Nigeria and South Africa, Brazil, India, China, and then looked at some of the ASEAN countries. The point about the lack of capacity of the African Union that uh, Professor Chan noted, I want to disagree fundamentally with that. My own interpretation of the Libya, at least in terms of mediation, my own interpretation of Libya and what went wrong in Libya was that the West was determined to do a regime change intervention and encouraged the NTC not to negotiate with the African Union in good faith. Um, and the African Union actually did have a concrete plan, in my view, 
that could have avoided the anarchy that we have currently. Because the idea of having a UN peacekeeping force and trying to actually have some kind of agreement politically did seem to be quite sensible if uh, it was to be accepted and if it was to be properly negotiated. But by NATO insisting that they would only talk to a UN special envoy that had never met Gaddafi and had not been talking to the NTC, it was pretty clear what the agenda was. And Obama did later concede that Gaddafi had more blood on his hands than any other, had more American blood on his hands than any other leader. So that's what they were eventually interested in doing. So I think it's important to at least note that. I don't think the problem was with the AU plan. I think the problem was with those who are determined not to implement the AU plan. Um, the issue of uh, the 19 Latin American states in San Francisco, Tom, I mean the Latin Americans first of all had been independent for much longer, since 1825. I made that point in the paper. So that's why I kind of separated them. And I saw a lot of them basically as being in the pockets. These were American votes, as far as I was concerned, which was why Stalin was so worried. He wanted to bring in the Soviet republics as well. Um, so, And the agenda they basically pushed, as Ruth Russell's uh, very good book that was recommended to me showed, was one of regime security, as I was noting in my paper. I didn't really see them playing a role that really kind of added to the architecture of the UN, uh, in my view. Maybe I can be convinced, but my own reading of their own contributions was more of a regime security one in trying to strengthen the inter-American <coughs> system. Um, rather than actually having some visionary ideas of how to make a new UN work in an innovative way. Your issue of the friends of the responsibility to protect in the South, and you have like countries like Ghana as focal points, and I know that your colleagues there organize meetings all over the place in trying to convert people to the religion of R2P, <laughs> Um, but this is more for issues of prestige. Countries like Ghana and others, of course, are going to be flattered by Western institutions and governments trying to draw them into this. I think the most important thing is the fact so many African governments were prepared to sign on to the ICC without doing any research on the consequences for them is the proof exactly that they are ready to sign on to a lot of things rhetorically, but it doesn't mean they actually support it. Because if you go to governments of Ghana and all these other governments that you say support R2P, and you ask them concretely, do they support the intervention that NATO launched in Libya or Kosovo, you would not get support for those interventions. So I think you have to distinguish between what these guys are doing rhetorically to gain prestige in the system and what they actually mean uh, when it comes to their political views. And I think that's very important to distinguish. The idea of the US being an anti-colonial power is, of course, absurd. Um, 
I, I think that the US rhetorically spoke as an anti-colonial power and at Suez it acted as an anti-colonial power because it was worried that the Soviet Union was going to gain influence in the Middle East if it did not. As soon as NATO was formed, the US actually supported French and Portuguese colonialism and neocolonialism in Africa. So I've always found it really preposterous, this idea that the US, which had swallowed up a third of Mexico's uh, territory, which toppled Mossadegh in Iran and did all sorts of things in Guatemala and other places, was somehow anti-colonial. Even in the 50s, this is absurd. But this evolves, but otherwise this whole argument about the US and the UN makes no sense. The, this, the UN then becomes a vehicle for American neocolonialism. But clearly in the 1940s, the US is trying to work out what its role in the world will be. It's deeply exploitative, deeply imperialist in all sorts of ways. But it's, at, it's contesting with the Europeans about control of this. But it's not a, it's not a done deal in 1945 that, that the US will simply back the Europeans in their various colonies. It's trying to push them out of these colonies, maybe to recolonize itself. But. Well, let me start by violently agreeing with Steve. Just <laughs> 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 um, on, on this US dimension, absolutely we shouldn't just talk about the West, but also just talking about the US. Uh, the, the, the sea change that comes with the death of Franklin Roosevelt is, I think, deeply underestimated in many ways. Uh, the dynamic between U.S. domestic politics and the rise of the African-American domestic liberation movements in the 1940s, the March on Washington of William Randolph of 1941, the Civil War in Detroit of 1943, that these have a powerful interaction with U.S. foreign policy throughout this period. Um, and I want to dwell on it because we have other, other topics to get into but there are these episodes that Churchill continues to talk about in his memoirs and in cabinet papers particularly where Roosevelt keeps throwing a paper at him every time they meet which has a timetable for decolonization in it. You end up with this watered down trusteeship system but Roosevelt for a variety of reasons is pushing a timetable uh, or agreement to set timetables for the British and French empires. It's the Indian, resist Indian resistance to British imperialism and the Chinese resistance on the battlefield to the Japanese that gets them um, into San Francisco, gets the Indians before uh, independence as independent actors of Bretton Woods and elsewhere gets China into the Security Council, as I said last night, as an Asian power and US domestic legislation against the Chinese is almost as vicious as against African Americans at the time. And we underestimate that dynamic. Critically, uh, as I say, I think we underestimate the domestic battle that Roosevelt had with the pro-Hitler wing in American politics. Susan Butler has recently published a wonderful book on Roosevelt and Stalin, which talks about this. The role of the American right in World War II is deeply unexplored 
um, uh, in uh, the way we, we look at the, pre the formation of the post-war order. With respect to the UN, it isn't so much uh, its defects, it's the fact that it's there at all. There's a political construction in the United States and in the resistance movements to fascism that creates a desire to do something better than the League rather than simply say, that was a waste of time, um, let's go straight to brute force. We bomb Nagasaki, next, next stop Moscow. And of course, you, know, you only have to read uh, the memoirs of Roosevelt's son um, that talks about the febrile atmosphere of Washington in the mid to late 40s, where there was a huge pressure to do just that. So I think these domestic tensions in the formative period are very important to look at. And a straight uh, anti-imperialist narrative doesn't do justice to that at all, in my, to my mind. Going on to some of the other points, briefly. Yes, Palawi, I've been too kind to India. <laughs> I'll be nasty to them. <laughs> I'm not sure that millennia is a, um, a, a, a straw, uh, Aunt Sally, or whatever. Um, we did analyse international security and one or two other journals um, of a mainstream nature and came up with a very remarkably um, similar picture. And I think that uh, while you have your own construction of the constructivists of millennium, I think it's a place where you know, many a young student uh, looking and interested in topics would go to for this sort of topic and find the companies bare, not only bare, not even be a, have an awareness or an introduction to this discourse at all. Can I just quickly say on this issue of US motivation? I agree with my friend Adi there. For my history studies, I had to do a topic called World Economic History in the 20th Century. And so the US had the following motivations. First of all, they wanted to have access to the imperial, the, 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 the markets of the, the, the colonies. Secondly, um, they wanted a rules-based rules international system international economic system so that it could, it could compete because the dust city was in a better position to compete. Third, it was afraid of the Cold War, um, the, the, the Russian encroachments. And fourth, there's a big debate on the Marshall Plan. Uh, the Marshall Plan was purely American self-interest. And in one sense, he's right that, yes, there is a strong uh, U.S. emphasis on colonialism, on, on decolonization. But at the same time, the hegemon is... I agree with that 100%. Nothing you've said I disagree with. But it means that the West yes. is not a unified yes. entity. The Americans are trying to push the Europeans yes. out yes. and take over this territory. So, convergence. But they're not <laughs> territorial okay. colonizers. Yes. Okay. The West doesn't exist or it's not unified? Some conception of the West definitely exists. It's strongest when you think about Europeans and their sense of, an, of being imperial civilizers. There it's much stronger. The United States is the child of this, but it's a very different kind of product out of this. And its form of imperialism is economic imperialism and the expansion of capitalism globally. It's not territorial colonization. So at this stage, it's really fighting against what it sees as you know, uh, uh, the appalling European occupation of other um, places in the world. And it wants to drive those Europeans out, but then it wants to bring money and a sort of security umbrella. But it doesn't want to recolonize these places itself. That's not its form of imperialism. Its form of imperialism is different. So if we, do, if we were talking more generally, I'd agree with you absolutely. If we talk, Well, it does exist. The West? Yes. 
Well, when I come to my comments, I'm going to argue, for example, against Avatar, that when you think about all the people, it makes no sense to think about Sen and Ulhak as not from the West. There's some products of both of these places, like Nehru and Gandhi, are products of, of two or more kind of discourses and environments. They're not in one camp or the other. It's a, there's a bridging relationship. Thank you. I have a word for this. Thank you very much for your uh, excellent it's very, uh, comments. Very helpful. Um, um, all of the, the points you've raised are, will help make this a better paper. On, uh, thank you for warning us against essentialism. I think that clearly uh, this is important. I think we probably all share it. I think this discussion is really a, a, an issue of levels of analysis. I think you can essentialize any particular, any, at times you do need to essentialize. Um, as you pointed out, if the purpose of um, this discussion is to have a generic overview for the purposes of the, the journal of dynamics at a particular time, we do need to be at that level where we're making meta-analysis relevant and equally essentialization uh, has to come in within a certain uh, type of discussion. What is the South? What is the West? All of these things have to be played with. Um, however, on this issue, I do believe that actually the West does exist clearly at, in relation to these discussions. I think your point is that there is a moment in time, there's a lull there <coughs> where before the passing of the baton in 56, is it really between uh, the colonial powers to the United States? What the United States doesn't have, which France and UK have, is a colonial presence, and that is undeniably a key difference. But all the same, imperialism, and you could go beyond, in fact, um, the case, we can go beyond uh, uh, this, the, the CIA stuff that you mentioned uh, in Guatemala and uh, and uh, Iran, you can go all the way to Haiti. In the, in right the, the, mm. uh, I'm sorry, yeah. I missed that. So that's exactly, you have these issues playing out in slow motion before there's a, con a conscious decision to go uh, there. And there are those dynamics playing out, but I don't see that that absence of a clear, explicit decision on that disappears at the dynamics which are power dynamics, which are imperialist in that sense, clearly, um, as such. Your point about some, the, the, the places, and I think several of you made this, San Francisco, Bandung, is always difficult to handle. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to look backwards on it, Tom's your point, and in many ways we imagine or reimagine inevitably. All the same, we know for a fact that they were key moments, as other moments that we didn't necessarily highlight have to be brought into this discussion. Forgotten histories, forgotten meetings and places is, isn't anything in history as such. No different agendas, no common position, absolutely. I, I, I agree with you on that. There's, this is important. The, uh, and finally, on this, the balance between avoiding romanticization and demonization, for that matter, on the other side, I think is basically as such. Specifically on the Arab League, uh, yes, I mean, I, I uh, thank you for, for, for agreeing with this. I do see it as an elitist uh, entity, which I like your word, genuflexes before both the ideas and before the entities that it's supposedly decrying. This is the contradiction at the heart of the Arab League, that outside the countries that form it make all of these statements about the Western influence and, and decry and then very paradoxically, or maybe not paradoxically, because it's a power game, end up replaying this. And in the latter phase, advancing this, very much so as such. Uh, so there's that contradiction. And the big sin of the Arab League is therefore that there is no um, counter-hegemonic discourse, which is exactly what the so-called man in the street in the Arab world is calling for. Mm -hmm. It doesn't provide that counter-hegemonic uh, discourse as such. 
but just uh, very quickly on, on, on the regional, sub-regional organizations which, which you pointed out, beyond the GCC, and I forgot to mention this, we, you have, of course, the Arab Maghreb Union. It's very hollow, very superficial, but it exists. And there was a short-lived Ar uh, Arab uh, Cooperation Council with Jordan, Iraq, and Yemen as a balance of the GCC, uh, which, this, which was very much Saddam Hussein-driven uh, as such. On uh, Palestine, yes, of course, I, I agree with you. This was very much a response to the Arab League. Saudi Arabia sponsored that in 2012 because it was irritated by the United States dropping Mubarak like a hot potato, and this was a sense of saying we will step and do different things. It's no particular love or support of the Palestinian issue, which it has basically paid lip service like Qatar and all of the others, up to and including Qaddafi for that matter, as such, all of them. So it was instrumentalizing. But I think it's an important moment because, as I said, the soft-spoken U.S. ally Saudi Arabia to go that far and in two op-eds, you know, that to have that type of language was clearly a bit of a rupture as such. Uh, and but Palestine was was instrumental as such. And but, but again, there was the Mecca meeting, uh, and there was a lot of other. And of course, Saudi Arabia didn't even say a word, a single statement last summer when 2,000 Palestinians were uh, killed as such. So how do you do? How do you reconcile that bit? and last summer's uh, events as such. On Libya, very quickly, um, you're right that there was the Algerian uh, project. The evidence of that is that Qaddafi's daughter ended up being uh, in exile uh, in uh, Algiers. However, I think we cannot avoid the fact that there was a, a, a torpedoing of what the AU was uh, trying to do, specifically by President Sarkozy. I mean, there uh, information that is available in which he literally supposedly threatened some of these heads of state that should they step in and get involved in this, that this will backfire and he will not have any of this. And I think we see the results of this today in relation to what could have been. I'm not saying that the AU's plan would be the answer to these, this difficult equation, but undeniably, I think there was Sarkozy, NATO, major power generally uh, uh, getting involved uh, in this as such. And I think I have covered uh, all of these uh, points. Um, yes, uh, on, on 1556 uh, in the West, if um, one of the interest, or rather your other point about the, the, the League of Nations, the missing chapter, that is very important because if you do have such a discussion, then you go back to the 1910s state building process in the region, which could have influenced this discussion. Uh, this is the post-Ottoman, as I said, this is all the, the Seb, Sykes-Picot, all of that moment in which I believe that some buying in could have happened 30 years before than the period that I covered here. So that would be something of an interesting, and the mandate system, of course, and on all of that. Uh, but again, mostly Mashrik. Maghreb is still under French colonies and protectorates. That was one of the, the strong points that came out of the earlier part of this project, namely that, uh, yes, the lead flopped, but the answer was not to dismantle a multilateral approach to cooperation, but to build on the lessons and, and several things, including minorities, treaties, the civil service, etc., became part of the UN. So. Um, it was not the solution was in 1945 was not 1914 minus uh, it was 1918 plus and, and we'll say a little more about that but I think that's that is important a very good start I 
I learned many things, including the fact that Bertie's involved in remedial education these days. So that's <laughs> um, well, why don't we take a 25 minute break and, and come back to 11.45? Relation to China in order to protect it. So he's also playing another game too. So if you just read Nehru's early speeches, you would expect Indian foreign policy to be one thing. When you look at the archive detail of Indian foreign policy, it turns out to be something different as well. So therefore, in both these papers, I would say, okay, there's a lot of language around, but you need more, more empirical or forensic attention to why certain um, uh, decisions or policies were taken and other policies were not, uh, not followed. Um, a good example of this is a book I think most people in here will either have heard of or would enjoy, which is this book Stephen, by Stephen Jensen called The Making of International Human Rights, which has just come out, where he, he shows how Jamaica, for example, was central to the global human rights regime through the UN, through the anti-racism committees, and that's almost been, it's been completely obliterated from the UN's history. Um, so, and he does that in great detail through the archives themselves. Um, I then had a, a, both these papers ended up being quite a lot about the past, perhaps Adriana's more than Amitav's. I then had a problem with this characterization which comes up in both papers about the marginalized South. And of course, if we look at the people of the global South, they're deeply marginalized in, in um, uh, any number of ways. But if you look at the governments in these countries, if you look at the, and particularly the contemporary Chinese state, Adriana says at some point, you know, she has China in with a uh, part of the sort of the, the states who are marginalised in the global governance architecture. China's a P5 member, has a veto on the Security Council, is the state, as I said earlier, blocking Security Council reform more than any other because it doesn't want India and Japan on the Security Council. It, 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 I'll send you some slides. It, China doesn't want it. He knows Japan is number one and India is number three candidate to be on the Security Council as a P5 member. Don't let me interrupt your okay. presentation. Right. I'll come in later. Yes, that would be um, And so even though, even though, of course, the politics are very complicated at the time, in 1945, China's nationalist China, the nationalists are still fighting the civil war, the Americans see them as a central ally, uh, essential to defeating the Japanese, but then hopefully a central ally in the Cold War that's beginning to evolve. So China gets a Security Council seat. So if we can put China, we can talk about China being in the marginalised box at the time in some ways, but in other ways, China's not in the marginalised box. And from 1971, China has, Communist China has the veto within the Security Council. So again, just problematising that over-generalized sense of the West and the rest at the time um, I think is important here. Um, uh, the other thing in the paper I thought that was brought up uh, at the beginning which didn't it didn't come back to was this idea that these are states which challenge the international economic order. And this is mentioned explicitly at the outset. That, that, and of course that fits very closely with the sort of um, uh, uh, development within, in the 1950s and 1960s out of Latin America about dependency and um, uh, uh, structural um, inequality leading into the NIO and OTO. Um, but the paper doesn't really come back to this. It's not clear that it's economic disadvantage, particularly because the UN is a set of political structures which 
developing countries manage to get leveraging in all sorts of other parts of the UN, if we take it out of just the narrow Security Council, there's all sorts of developments, which the Jensen book uh, points to in relation to human rights, but there are other developments too, which doesn't necessarily focus on the obvious economic inequality that it evolves during these years, but it shows that, um, uh, well, I'm asking whether the argument should be made that what makes the decolonizing state weak is their economic position, um, or and if that's the case, then that needs to be more systematically argued for throughout the rest of the paper. And overall, and I've welcomed some feedback from others, I was confused about what the core argument was. I couldn't really work out in the paper what the, the central point being made was. And that's the danger of starting with this metaphor in this way. That you say, send you off down one route, and then you're not really clear what the metaphor is supposed to be telling you. So. On Amitav's paper, um, I had two or three, um, I'll, I'll pick up two or three of the points that I've got here. Um, this point, which, which um, Paddy and I argued about earlier, although I do think there is such a thing as the West, um, it's the extent to which the people he identifies we should think of as non-Western thinkers. Okay? Amartya Sen, Cambridge, Harvard, the Nobel Prize, long-time friend of John Rawls, uh, Ulhaq, Manmohan Singh, educated at Cambridge and Oxford, um, Gandhi, Nehru, Francis Deng. They all, of course, if we look at the terms of their geographical origin, are born outside the West. But they're all interpreters, translators, brokers between the West and the rest, whatever, for their entire lives. And much of their working lives is spent in institutions in the core, the heartland of the West. Cambridge, Oxford, New York, Washington, Harvard, Boston. You know, so so rather than... So Amitav wants to see the ideas they come up with as something which is fundamentally rooted in their African or Indian um, uh, um, uh, origins... But uh, for me, it makes more sense to see them as evolving out of an ongoing conversation that they have with this idea of the relationship between the West and the rest, and between ideas that uh, might be different conceptions of democracy or justice or rights, and what they come up, um, uh, into contact with when they move through these central Western institutions, speaking English, running important offices or positions in the UN and elsewhere, to see them just as products of the non-West, there are, I think we can point to people who have a very radical, a very different kind of revolutionary ideology. Um, I think, Mahmoud, you made the point about the Arab League not coming up with a counter-discourse. I think there will be people we can point to have a counter-discourse in that way, but I don't think it's the people I'm talking about. I think the people he's talking about are interlocutors between the West and the rest and are heavily part of that sort of transnational um, environment. Um, I thought there was a tension in the paper between his stress on a particular conception of sovereignty around Bandung and then what he says about human rights. And this for me is explained by a point I made earlier, which is if we're talking about the peoples of the non-West, and of course we're talking about the global South, we're also talking about very poor people in the North too. Um, if we're talking about them then they are deeply marginalised in all these institutions. But if what we're talking about is governments and states, then the Chinese state, the Indian state, are extremely powerful and central to the way the contemporary economy and political system is operating, and increasingly powerful. 
So it's not a surprise to me that you could use one analysis and they may use the discourse as China does consistently of anti-colonialism and the treaty system and the, as the Indian government uses the language of uh, anti-colonialism and, but when you look at what they actually do they behave a lot like governments a lot like western governments they manipulate, they control they seek their own advantage they're... now that, what, to what extent is the Chinese government a southern government? or the Indian government of sovereign government. And that takes us back, of course, to the course of international relations perspective question. I may see it differently from many of you. Thank you very much for that. I, I think it's time to throw it open to uh, the forum. But very quickly, I'll just jump in with one point. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with what Steve said about the whole point of marginalization. If you, if you look at the states of Brazil, India, and China, they're all elitist. Internally, they're all hegemonic. They, they wield extraordinary power, not just on their citizenry, but equally on their neighboring states. So in what way can we call them marginalized? They're also aspiring to the same kind of Western ideal of power and hegemony, which is um, you know, what, what the Americans can do, we will try and do better in our backyard, and the Chinese want to do it as well as the Americans, if not better than the Americans. So there is a, there is a tension in terms of you know, what, what marginalization are we talking about. And, where Adriana's paper was concerned, I really like how she began with, with, the, with the whole ships analogy. It perhaps would be good if she, if she tied it in at the end with um, talking about the evolution of these three countries and how you know, the plank has changed. There's one side which is the old ship and the other side which is the new ship. So how has that evolved for Brazil, China and India, especially in the dynamics of Security Council reform? That, that might be an interesting way to put it, but um, open to everyone who's read the paper. These are all really salient topics. Uh, well, actually, I, I was I like I had the conversation with her when she started because she works directs something called the BRICS Policy Center, um, and I've worked with her before. And I thought taking the three members of the South who are actually presidents on San Francisco is a is a perfect way to justify what she's doing. Um, but I certainly think that the the, the much of the conversation is about this ship. So I really like her image. It's just that it, it, I don't think she came back to it sufficiently uh, to make it persuasive. Because as I say, this entire conversation is about the US in 45, Britain in 45, China in 45, not exactly as today. So I, I really want to push her, uh, and we will uh, continue that out better. And it might have been interesting to take a state which is more or less the same as it was in 45 and now. China has changed so much. India was part of the British Empire at that point. Um, it, Brazil, in some ways, is the state that can make the strongest claims that can be consistent through this period, mm -hmm. but with tremendous internal change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. If I just may ask <laughs> um, uh, I agree with your point. Um, uh, I don't know if you were aware of that. There's a, a new book which was released in Oxford. Uh, by Nicola Leveringhouse, and uh, she actually makes a really good, good point about China having the nuclear weapon and how uh, China actually approached that issue with other countries uh, by signing agreements and, um, I mean, actually accepting to talk about it with other countries and having a more balanced approach than the US, I mean, would have. Um, I found the, this, uh, this book very interesting. Uh, it's something which is not very well known, and also it seems to be sort of in contra contradiction with uh, China not being a, a member of the Security Council. 
Uh, it, it's very interesting to see um, how China is having a, a much different approach than the US. Of course, it's focusing on the economy uh, very much, and all its uh, decision is sort of having uh, economic uh, motivations. However, it's, it, it shows that it's a, a much more balanced approach uh, in terms of international relations, and I think it's very... Uh, what about South China Sea? Yes, yeah, as well. Yeah, but yeah. the Chinese are... Um, <coughs> behaving exactly as the Americans behave so in the Monroe Doctrine. Yeah. They're drawing their own Monroe Doctrine around Southeast Asia. They're different uh, in a way, but at the same time, they are Nazis, where they, um, they sort of, uh, I mean, adopt a more modern approach to international Could you just introduce yourself, Alexandra? Oh, yeah, I'm really sorry. Um, well, my name is Alexandra Gertz Charlie. Uh, basically, I'm a foreign investment lawyer, uh, focused on arbitration, but I'm a, an external PhD student at Leiden. Okay, thanks. I, I cannot resist coming in. Um, I, I First of all, I think it's important that we're, here we are discussing the Global South and its contributions over the last 70 years. And the names we hear are Western ones, Jensen, Moffat, etc. It's quite telling. It's an unconscious thing and a small point, but it is one that is quite telling in terms of who gets written out of the discourse, even in terms of an issue in which three quarters of the world is involved. And you can't cite any of their scholars or thinkers um, in terms of <coughs> what they're contributing to ideas. Very much like Paul Williams writing an article on the AU without citing a single African. So I think that's what, for me, makes Amitav's paper so important and interesting. Um, and, I mean, I just don't see why the fact that we're trained in the West makes us Western. But I didn't say it makes you Western. Um, I said it makes you a bridge. Uh, no, no, but Amitav's point is basically that these guys, it's the fact that they developed in India or Sudan or Kenya, in the case of Wangari Matai, it's those experiences and the interaction of their ideas with the West that made them so important. And the point that he went on to make is that these guys get, in, get written out of discourses in the West, and if they are accepted in terms of discourses, then what people grungingly say is that, well, they were trained in the West, so effectively the West tries to claim them. That's what Amitav was writing in his paper, and what you were presenting came across a little bit like that, to me anyway, but maybe it's my own thing. But I just can't see somebody like Ali Mazrui uh, who spent most of his life in the West as Western, you know? I'm not saying he's Western. Okay. You, you that, want, that, that, you want to create yeah. the two boxes, and yes. I'm saying that these are interlinked. Yes. But it's the fact that they actually grew up and lived and were shaped by ideas in their own environment, not important to what they were basically coming out with. Yeah. Hugely important. I yeah, mean. so I mean, I think that's the point that Amitav was making that I happen to agree with. Um, and then, in terms of this 
issue about China being the one blocking UN Security and the other Council states are too, but reform. China is the most prominent. Well, measured by how? How are you measuring it? What is your yardstick? Because China's main concern is to keep Japan out of the Security and Council reform. Uh, Russia was not in favor of Security Council report, uh, reform at all. Um, the US also was not in favor, especially after Germany had supported the, or, or opposed the Iraq intervention, and it's never been keen to expand the Security Council uh, very much. So how are you measuring well, the them US, being the most the US opposed? Has made, what is the measure? The US has said to India that it will try to push for a permanent Security Council seat for India, which is clearly part of US foreign Talk policy. Talk is cheap. China. China has also said it to African countries, like South Africa that it will support it. Talk is cheap. How are we measuring that China is the most recalcitrant because, when there are three because people Because all the detailed empirical material I've read about negotiations with the UN... So Who's uh, writing them? Because you've only cited Western authors so far. Who is writing this empirical I've cited one data? Western author, and I promise you, Jensen's book is the most sophisticated analysis of the South and human rights that he spent years in, in Jamaica and elsewhere doing it. So it may be a problem that it's not a Jamaican academic doing that, but it's based entirely in archives about that are in So place. who are these empirical data people that are just saying the, that China that we is both the read in, in, in a whole series of international journals, magazines... Let me leave it. I mean, I'm just making a small point. I don't want to... No, and I think, of course, we can probably find empirical material on both sides. What I, let, me, let me row back and agree to this, which is China is as resistant as any other power to reform of the UN Security Council. That is pointing its finger, putting its finger on um, is the construction of these uh, discourses. And to the extent that our topic today is precisely retracing the history of how this played out and subsequent practice. It's not just the visions, it's also that may or may not have been there as we discussed in the previous session, at least in the case of the Arab League, but subsequently how this played out in the practice of the UN and, and the different missions. But I think underscoring that, you do have issues of representations and who speaks and who speaks on behalf of whom and who, both North and South. But at the heart of this question, is an entity, an organization that is supposed to represent this whole universal discourse. Uh, whereas the reality of it is that you have not only asymmetry, but actually more importantly, dissonance between what is being preached, what is being presented, and what is taking place um, um, politically for most, if not the whole of the global south, with the variances that we mentioned like in, uh, in the previous session and so on. I was, I was, uh, interested in your comment about the different individuals' trajectory that you mentioned. In many ways, indeed, yes, they are as much part of the center, uh, as you were saying, and not necessarily, uh, you could add Akhdar Brahimi, by the way, to that group, mm. and, and oh, many, huge number of people. many, many others. And Dani Saeed, all sorts of people. Well, Edward Saeed, I think, uh, would be a bit of an exception in the sense that he himself had, had actually, uh, in his, his whole argument, the title of his memoir is Out of Place, has always been that he never belonged here or there. Mm. Uh, but I would say, and, and he's, I think, on a, on a more sophisticated level, uh, if I, with all due respect to the others. Uh, but but it, it, what as, as both of you having this exchange, I'm, I'm reminded of a new book, which I need to mention here, which is extremely important, which pursues the Saeed discussion. 
which is uh, which is the Columbia uh, author. The book is in my bag if I can find it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is Can Non-Europeans Think? Um, yeah. Thank you. Can Thank you. That's right. And so you have this discussion, which is now going to the next level. And, and I just wanted to stress, the, I think, the importance of it. It's not just the debate, which is good, but how and where is it taking us forward from the 70 years anniversary onwards? So if you could comment on that subsequently, I'd be very interested as well. Thank you very much. Actually, what is important? I mean, yes, the papers was both. Yeah, I mean, there's one, there's one sent, I mean, he does need to engage a little seriously with this conversation, which we will communicate, because he basically says this is unimportant, and this is more important, and it, this conversation suggests that it's a little more complicated. It, it's, yeah, possibly too black and white, but yeah. to quickly to jump in. Black and white, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> To jump in in terms of theory, we, we're talking about discourses here. Just, just to make one throwaway point about Sen, I think Sen would be the first person to deny that he belongs to either side. He, he, having had some personal interaction with him at, at a point, he'd be the first one to say he's a product of both the worlds. He wouldn't definitely deny his South Asian, not just Indian, Bengali. He's a very, very proud regional Bengali, probably more than being an Indian. But he also harks back to his, you know, his old Western education system. So with Sen, I, I think it's a little... Sen and Mahabubulha, they're, they're really more... Um, they're more grey than, than any of the others. Mathai, uh, I don't know her work very, very intimately, but certainly Sen and Mahabubulha. And the other nod that perhaps can be made here, and you see, you might, I don't know what you think about it, but the whole subaltern movement, which is, you know, which, which most of us are familiar with in the room, starting from Ranajit Guha, you know, right up to Partha Chatterjee, uh, it didn't get taken up by, it didn't really get taken up by Africanists in that sense, but it was, it definitely started with questioning, you know, even um, uh, the, the hegemony of southern governments, southern religious governments, and it was all about recreating and, and taking back history, not just from the colonial past, but even from, you know, the colonizers of the independent uh, country, so to say. So that maybe a nod to, to subaltern studies, postmodern studies is something, and then the discourse that comes out of it is probably important because it's a huge chapter. It was a huge chapter in, in protest. It was a huge chapter in taking this, this discourse further. Uh, that's perhaps something uh, you know, for, for the panel to talk about. Any, any thoughts on this? I, th I think this is a much deeper <laughs> discussion. We have opened up really a Pandora's box of mm -hmm. issues. For any of us, for me, you know, the, 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 particularly the, the Western University, I call it the Imperial Brain Trust, and that it is. Mm -hmm. And I think for these reflections about how you know, this idea does non-Western think, mm -hmm. you really have to look into the structures, the, the system. Even though people have succeeded, moved up, we know them by name, mm -hmm. but you have to go back into the the, the struggles they went through, the, the process of induction into this club. Uh, for me, the entire system of rank and tenure promotion is all set up how non-Westerners can be inducted into this into this club. So in terms of how ideas is formed, it really goes beyond. Just we're talking about the UN system, but. I think we, you know certainly we need to celebrate those who have, who have made it, who are you know doing major contribution. But the systemic issues 
uh, still remain. So these ideas, when you go into major important forums, how ideas are constructed, you really you can't solve it at that particular point. It's a much more deeper structural issue that, that, that are there. And uh, uh, I mean, I talk about you know where the survivors. You know, we have succeeded, but we have survived. The system is up early. And I think Anita could be able to speak to this issue of trying to get where he is, he is there right now. And so how we negotiate that. But in a sense, uh, we do bring our own background to enrich the discussions. And that, that's an important contribution. But there are systemic issues also, how, how, how ideas you know, you know, become. Uh, you know, with legitimate ideas, and this continues for heaven's sake. You know, and, uh, ideas and practice. Practice. This is quite, quite, quite very, very, very difficult processes. And uh, but you know, you know, you you come to experience. You you laugh at it sometimes. I never get angry anymore. You know, I just, <laughs> I just, I just you know, I feel sorry for you being stupid. You know, but uh, but but you can you can be conceived into it. So. So and I see it at that level when you get at that level of you know policy advice and others. And why do certain things you know get up to that level of uh, for consideration for policy discussion? It's a much larger. But at least somehow we have to nuance that. It should not be the central piece, but we need to sort of bring it you know in terms of this formulation. I see it in the more contemporary issues. Issue. Any issues that we do. Uh, right now, still, you know, whose ideas matter, or uh, the level of participation or inclusion. Sometimes you have participation, mm -hmm. inclusion without participation. Mm -hmm. oh, yes. So all these things tend to play. But does I, I mean we are <laughs> a product of many worlds in many ways, you know. Uh, but the question is, uh, sometimes you know, you know, you may be speaking truth to power, whatever that power is. <laughs> And at what point are they accepted or not? But uh, let me come back just one more issue. I think with regard to the to this G77 mm -hmm. and the rest of it is not only the G77 has expanded numerically, but also there has been really a differentiation, you know, within the G77. Part of it as a result of globalization, you know. And uh, I've watched through the entire process of, for example, agricultural negotiation. You read the positions of Brazil, India, uh, South Africa, completely quite different to the interests of developing countries. Mm -hmm. Yet, you know, when it comes about organizing, mobilizing the developing countries, you know, they, they sort of lead or they join. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are fundamental changes of differences. And secondly, let's not forget about, of course, if you take Brazil, particularly China and India, they have a strategic partnership with the United States, each of them, and they value that relationship very important than solidarity with the, with the G77. So recognize the shift in those relationships, despite the rhetoric, they have been shifting in terms of uh, in practice how things actually play out. Sometimes they are actually against developing countries, oh, yes. uh, despite the rhetoric of uh, representing uh, the, develop the developing countries in general. And there's also increasingly less talk about representing developing countries yeah. for these countries, yeah. because they now want to make the big, big Brothers Club. Yeah. So uh, we've left that past behind. Some 
but they also don't want to let others take on the mantle. So it's an interesting inflection point in terms of the aftermath. Which is very interesting, the reverse side of it, the way they do their own <coughs> new forms of bilateral-oriented multilateralism. They are behaving the same way as, as, as the developed countries. Exactly. In the way, the agenda setting, everything, whether the Chinese or the Indian bilateral relations, very much set agenda setting, very little discussions what the agenda is going to be in New Delhi Monday, for example. The Indian set at all. Right. We just show up. You know, for sure. Hoping to pick up a few scholarships in the capital of road project. Yeah. So their behavior is in many ways also, the rhetoric is also very progressive. The question is, are these new relationships transformative? And I don't believe they are transformative. But, but uh, just coming in, but it's also not as if the rest of the countries in the south or um, stemming from the, the sub-regions of these chosen few. It's not as if they're sitting by idly and just allowing them to speak yeah. on their behalf. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the Argentinians, other countries in South America, other African countries have asserted themselves, spoken out against some of the you know, perceived leadership roles that these countries have appropriated for themselves. So you have BRICS, and in reaction to BRICS, you have MIGTA, and you have MINT, and you have you know, um, these countries uh, asserting themselves. So I think there's a, I mean, there's a lot going on there, but I do think Ari touched on a very important point, though. You know, ideational power, um, the power of ideas uh, outside of governments, states, multilateral organizations. I think it's very important, and oftentimes our reference point comes from the West, Western scholars, or, or scholars who happen to live in the West. Outside of it, there really is a lot going on, and I do think we need to familiarize ourselves with with uh, some of the ideas stemming from these regions. And I just think it's very important. I just wonder whether there's a, what one's really talking about in their part of this discussion is powerful and not powerful rather than Western and Southern. That, you know, from an ancient history or medieval history or a period, we're going to say a period of study which is before the dominance of the West you can probably see many similar phenomena rising and falling and that many of the characteristics we're discussing are to do with uh, changing balances of power. It isn't that states then become more Western, it's they take on the attributes of states that acquire more power. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, to put a different way, one might say intellectually one sees a certain element of infiltration or um, uh, I wouldn't say colonization of Western thinking of um, Southern actors in these institutions. And certainly one of the lost institutions of this early period I've been looking at of war crimes, it's clear that the officials of Imperial India, sort of just pre-independence, see themselves as representing ideas of military law and war crimes which go back to Tipu Sahib and the pre-imperial era and the Chinese representatives in Wellington coup see themselves as uh, bringing Confucian ideas into the debates and into governmental processes that in our pantheon we only think of as Nuremberg 
but in fact Indian and Chinese agency in the intergovernmental processes leading to Nuremberg, if you remove that agency from what I've been looking at, you don't ever get to Nuremberg because the Anglo-American establishments are brought keen screaming to any kind of war crimes process at the time. And the people who gauge them are weak Western civil society, the weak exiled governments in London from Europe, and the Indians, and particularly the Chinese. And the Chinese actually sign up to all war crimes ideas proposed by the continental Europeans in a way that neither the Soviet Union or the British or the Americans ever do in terms of some of the foundational documents of these, this period. So those would be my two observations. One is just same old, same old, and not Western and not Western. And the other actually is that there's a much stronger level of agency which sees itself as having roots in its own culture. I'm not saying it does, but certainly sees itself and portrays itself in somewhat, certainly one of the critical periods in the evolution of what we now call human rights. And indeed, some of the work we looked at actually sees the time of the First World War and in this period, Western officials saying we must use the term human rights because uh, we can't use the term Christian rights in 1919 because uh, the Ottomans will be upset, the Muslims will be upset, so we have to use human rights, not Christian rights. Um, and then later on, uh, it'll upset the Jews. And you see drafts being changed to say human, not Christian, for precisely those reasons. May I just a two-finger on this? Well, just on that, actually, this um, genealogy. Uh, Makao Mutua has worked a lot on this, and he makes uh, an argument uh, at SUNY. He makes an argument about this metaphor, uh, about the human rights being very much a metaphor, rather, about the uh, socialization uh, of the savage, ultimately. And you do have a lot about to do with this repackaging, which takes place between 1918 all the way to 1948, incidentally. I, I think you make an important point about power, um, which is, by the way, the, 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 this set, the session is very much um, about this. All the same, I think that if we link it to the previous discussion about the, the West, that power does have a location. It does have an identifiable address from which this is kind of projected. Um, and I think just as the trick in the previous session was to have a balance between avoiding essentialism um, and having some characteristics of the global South discourse at the time when these ideas are formulated, here I think the balance should be between having <coughs> the transformation of the West as we discussed it but put in balance with the nature of the power that is being, um, that is coming into, a, uh, that is reified, as you said earlier, during those times in, in the middle of that uh, century. I haven't read the precedent paper because I only, it must have been sent me, but I only got it today, but I will allow myself to make some comments on these two papers together. I have the impression that Part of the difficulty that we may be operating under is that perhaps, as the professor Chen, Chen who left, uh, he was speaking about the central arguments of a set of papers. And so, here also, to me, when I listen to this discussion and uh, having looked at 
Acharya's paper and Tom Cruise's other paper here. I find myself thinking that what was the contribution of these writers to shaping the United Nations? Because that is the thread that we are following. And Amitabh Acharya's paper is making a case, yes, the West, that the South was influential. I don't find myself, I don't, myself, I don't find it necessary to go there. Because I think if there is a thread, what was the contribution that thinking made to shaping the UN? I think that uh, that would help us. And also, to, if I may say so, it matters not uh, whether you're West or North or South, it's the quality of your idea that comes at the end of the day. So having said that, um, in Amitabh paper, there were thinkers, and I, I actually think he has to mention Gandhi in his paper. There was an ex-Columbia University professor, Dennis Dalton. He wrote a book um, on Gandhi, and he wrote another book called Indian Ideas of Freedom. And in uh, a set of lectures that he gave, which I was just on CD and I happened to read, he's contrasting Gandhi's inclusivity with Hitler's exclusivity. So I, and th this vision of Gandhi, even though it was not directly in San Francisco, it was there in the air. And then, of course, if you think about someone like Sukarno and Pankasila and people like in Kruma, even though they're not directly at San Francisco, ideas are in the realm. And these ideas are influencing. So I'm going to um, make that point here about intellectual history. Gandhi, and then I think also, too, that there is a man called Charles Amun on the second day of the San Francisco conference. He made a powerful speech at the San Francisco conference. Of course, Charles Amun was educated at Harvard, but he was in Lebanese, and so the fact to me, it's not important that he was educated at Harvard. It's the power of his thinking. Uh, so, uh, so anyhow, by the way, Como was educated at Lincoln University. Absolutely. <laughs> you remember that? So, so anyhow, that's my first point. The, the power, the intellectual contribution. I think also, too, that there are people um, in his, you know, there's this Mexican guy who won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for his contribution, for, uh, for his leadership on disarmament issues. I forget his name, uh, but Garcia Robles. Yeah, I think it was Garcia Robles. I think when it comes to shaping the United Nations and thinkers, someone like Garcia Robles would deserve. So that's that's my point in his uh, uh, comment in his paper. On the Brazilian, uh, for, forgive me, I don't know, I never met his uh, color of Brazilian. Uh, the, the Brazilian yeah. professors, Adriana. Adriana, Adriana's paper. I think, uh, and I, I may perhaps uh, send in. Uh, Paragraph or two of written comments on this. I think that the, I think that at San Francisco, there are important contributions by each of these countries. For example, there is a book on the Dumbarton Oaks conference, and the Dumbarton Oaks China is just brought into the discussion, and the Chinese representative Wellington Koo, he makes a detailed submissions that the United Nations must be grounded on law and justice and equity. Mm -hmm. And the major powers, they said, get rid of him. They only get kept <laughs> so one or two of his points. And then, um, Sarah Wellington Coombe. He was mentioned, not, not in the article, not in the article. Right, right. Yeah. 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 No, I am now in the prison, and Adriana's article. Yeah. 
And then I'll, that's China. And then I'm India. I happen to be in India twice, and then um, there is this great guy um, who drafted the Indian Constitution. And outside of the, across the Jamuna River, there is a statue to him outside of the, the, what's it called, the Taj Mahal. And he says, educate, organize, agitate. Well, now, as part of the, uh, as part, so India at the time, India made a submission uh, on the draft, and the, uh, outside, uh, the UN Commission on Human Rights must have powers that would allow it to refer situations to the UN Security Council. There's much there that can be drawn upon. That's China and India, what's the other one I'm missing? Uh, what's the other country? Brazil. 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 Brazil had uh, Brazil had a lawyer called Alejandro Alvarez, and Alejandro Alvarez is calling for the reshaping of international law to meet. I think that these intellectual curves and this, if you go to the San Francisco Conference at the closing session, the closing session of the San Francisco Conference, you see a powerful Brazilian statement. Uh, that this organization that we have created must be used to benefit the poor of the world. I think it will be important to bring out some of these, uh, some of these inputs at that time. Not only the ships, the ships may have been par- the ships may have been uh, uh, going to parallel uh, tracks, but there were important tracks. And one last one. I happened to do a paper at the request of the Friedrich Naumann Foundation on how. It, uh, the BRICS country were, were responding to the UN Universal Review process. And what I found there was that A, all of these countries were accepting the UN, the UN norms. B, all of these countries were saying we're striving. C, all of these countries were saying that we have severe problems. D, all of these countries are saying we're part of this. So I actually think that there, there are things here that can come out of this, um, that can come out of in this paper. So. If I may just use the prerogative of being chairperson, uh, if I may, Bertie, and yes. with due respect to Gandhi, if there's one thing that I liked about Amitabh Acharya's paper yeah. was that it didn't mention Gandhi. I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I disagree. May wear my chairperson's hat as prerogative, and you, know, you will suddenly get your more than 10 minutes. But um, I think it's very important to analyze Gandhi in the light of history. It's not revisionist history anymore. But Gandhi was um, an instinctive racist. Gandhi was an instinctive sectarian who had a very, very limited worldview, which is based on a certain idealization and romanticization of Hindu philosophy, which um, he had this idea of, some of you who are aware of Gandhi, but he had this, he had this idea of Ram Rajya, which unless you're a very practicing, sort of rooted to the ground Hindu, you, you, and, or you wouldn't be able to identify with it because it you know, leaves out vast swathes of the Indian population at that point in time. And Gandhi's, and, you know, the Tolstoy farm, Satyagraha, but all of that was rooted in an extremely racist identity of him not being black, not being accepted as white, and having a problem with um, not being accepted as white, but being grouped with, uh, with the black population in, 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 in South Africa at that point in time. So I, I, why Gandhi gets his due nod, and you, know, you have to have his statue outside the Palais de Nation, which, fair enough, but I, I do think it's perhaps time as you know, maybe a ne- next generation of uh, a southern 
academics to, to revisit Gandhi. In fact, Perry Anderson has written this incredibly uh, interesting essay, a revisionist essay of both Gandhi and Nehru and the idea of international Indian nationalism, but I won't go into that. But I think Gandhi being left out, perhaps, maybe Amitabh can put in a word as to why he didn't. And it would be interesting to find out why he didn't put Gandhi in. <laughs> but, um, a book just mind. came out, by the way, in South Sorry? Africa by some academics in University of KwaZulu-Natal exploring exactly what you've just said, reinterpreting Gandhi basically as fighting only for Indian rights in South Africa. And there's more and more work coming out exactly. by exactly. Indian academics. So and I just want to warn you, the same is going to happen to Mandela, but let me not turn uh, Mandela. <laughs> 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 Thank goodness, yes. I mean, First of all, I second what you just said. <laughs> but I think if we want to give it back feedback to our colleague here, I think this could be uh, examined as a larger point Absolutely. about who has the pedigree of the voice on behalf of this global south. And sure. these yeah. historical figures, yeah. you mentioned one, I could think of a few uh, just in, in the region that I mentioned. You have the Bugibas of, yes. of, of yeah. this world. Yes. You have the Sangors in West Africa. So you do have who makes it to that uh, Recognition. I hope it doesn't happen to and Mandela. I, no, um, I hope it doesn't happen to Mandela. But, but I'll, I'll, I don't know and as why? much as, as you do. And why? why? But, but, but we know the figures that we mentioned. Mm. I think there's enough materials out there That's to right. reconstruct the That's mindset. Uh, and I think go, this goes to the heart of, of examining this in, in this paper in particular. I think it goes back to Fantu's point about structure. There's a, there are structural reasons why some of these ideas make it and why some don't. It's convenient to point in time perhaps project Gandhian ideas, but I know Bertie would want to be done. No, no, I just want to say this, that we see some Indian imperialism here. <laughs> she, was, she was born in India. She knows the subject. I was born in Guyana. I know very well. I read a little bit. But I would say this, nevertheless, whatever other ills may be, the power of Gandhi's thoughts intrinsically, the following. The unity of humankind, the unity of humankind and the species, Bailing a word of you, but well, you know, so I, I think I've said enough, but Indian imperialism has squashed the poor man from Guyana. I think you're forgetting. 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 I which raises the question of race and where race is in this volume, which then links into Fancy's point about who makes it and who doesn't make it, and why even if you make it, then there are always problems with having made it. And maybe what might be perceived as, you know, you maintaining that dual identity is extremely difficult within that sort of environment. So it might be worth looking at, at race more systematically in terms of, because so much race is a, uh, issues to do with race around in the late 1940s, the United States and African Americans is a central part of the UN discussion, you know, the NAACP is trying to undermine in some ways the American position, because it sees it as so deeply racist, and so, and then that then can lead into the 1960s and the Convention, uh, the convention on Racism, so that might be something that, that would in fact... And then you could bring that up to the present day, but potentially there'd be more continuity in that sort of issue there that, that isn't there. 
Did Georgia Chapman have the Britain Race Universal Declaration in America in opposition to it? Was George Chapman one of your guest kids? I couldn't tell you what is in my chapter. Okay. That's what I think. But, you know, the session's throwing out some interesting points, but I think I also take Bertie's point of linking it back to the main issue of the UN and setting it up. So, do we have any more suggestions for Adriana, for Amitabh? I, I, well, I have, I have one. Yes, sorry. yes. Which is the Francis Deng example, which in some ways it says something about what I wanted to try to say with my first comment about Amitabh's paper, which is that Francis Deng then gets marginalised. Okay, he's not. He's not. Tom will know, of course, far more about this than, than I will. Tom marginalised him. No, 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 but. The Tom was on the, was involved <laughs> with the R2P commission. Actually, no, actually it's, it's quite true because when I was asked who should be on it, like, nobody listens to me, not my daughters or the. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I said, well, isn't Francis an obvious choice? And I, I never got to the bottom of that. But finally, if you look in Axworthy's autobiography and Garris, I forgot, it's Brookings Institution book, they both finally. Acknowledge the fact that it was built on Deng's idea, uh, but that was not made clear in the, in the commission report. Really, but I, I so I think more investigating. It would be good for Amitabh to look then at the institutional life of that idea and how yeah. it is then gets marginalised, picked up by the foreign ex foreign minister of Australia and the Canadians, who then do something with it they want to do, and this yeah. provides a particular cover and becomes something very different from what. Francis Bain is talking about in the 1990s. Uh, in Gareth Evans' initial understanding, something much more like legitimate military intervention against the wishes of the sovereign, which is then obviously changed a lot in 2005. You see, your, your example about Deng uh, is, of course, an example at the level of ideas, right? A powerful um, uh, example of ideational power. So at the, at the level of practice, and on the same scope, before R2P, was invoked, the African Union and the OEU played around with the concept of from non from non-interference to non-indifference, which now of course becomes a doctrine at EU level. So there's an example of southern agency, which of course then, you know, um, makes its way into the UN but but never shall be recognized. Right? Uh, a, a player from Africa of, of all parts. But there's a there's another one that uh, Amitav also uh, talks about, which is that Ulhaq's idea uh, of human security is not mentioned once in Lloyd Axworthy's uh, book. And in a way, he thought that he'd also been shortchanged or marginalized in the same way. So it's the way these ideas are also transmitted and maybe in some ways adopted. Yeah. Absolutely. Can I just mention just a quick footnote? Francis um, gets credit deservedly for this. Paris Aquarius in 1991 delivered a speech in some place in Europe. And he says in that speech, I have the bullet up, the sovereignty that resides in the people cannot be used against the people. And so what I'm saying is that however Francis operationalized the idea of sovereignty as responsibility in the march of ideas, we would have to look at what Barry Zakrayar said. This speech was published 
in the review of the International Commission of Jurists around this time, 1981, 1982. I, I, I think that the... The first use of it was in the mid-80s, 1986, if I recall. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, yeah. Well, Francis deserves credit for having kind of mobilized the idea. Um, so anyway, that's just a quick one. Well, actually, he, he, he assumes that everyone agrees that ideas matter. Yeah. So I, I would suggest that maybe he defend that proposition. I mean, I agree, but it's, it's not a foregone conclusion. But there are so many ideas. And this yeah. question, the which politics of which ones get traction, yeah. mm-hmm. well, then they become colonized and reformed when the moment's right. And then they become owned by the people who weren't their originators. Mm-hmm. That's the business of politics on a daily basis. Anybody else who might have more time? Questions? Well, I just got, I don't remember personally the um, first uh, secretary I particularly lead, but um, Dak Hammerstone, I always did his markings, and uh, uh, um, he was tragically died of aircraft, and some people might have thought not just accidental, yes. but um, anyone just, I've I, I, I got a, Group, I would say we discussed Dak Hamilton two months ago and the influence he had over the United Nations. I just asked, who, who do you think is the best secretary of the UN they've had? Anybody got an answer to that one? That yes. <laughs> Tom would be able to answer that. Where do you work with me? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, my criterion would be the ones who were not afraid to surround themselves with smart people. <laughs> and therefore, I see Hammerschold and Annan being better than, for instance, Boutros, who thought he knew the answer to everything on the planet. So I think I would put them toward the top yeah. on that basis. That's my criteria. Even with Rwanda. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can I just, could, sir? Well, actually, sir, I, I, I will go out on a limb and say that the current one is not on my list. The difference, if I may say so, between Habershaw and Kofi Annan is that you're absolutely right that Kofi Annan brought in uh, bright people like Edward Mortimer. When I was head of the speechwriting service, my secretary saw a cartoon in one of the, um, in the I think in the Nation or one of these in New York. And she framed it and she gave it to me. And there's this fat cat at the desk, and this poor guy standing in front of him. She says, well, you are my speechwriter. You tell me what I stand for. So, <laughs> so um, the difference between Kofi Annan and Hammershaw, Hammershaw had the power of thought. Mm-hmm. And he could oper- right. operationalize his thinking. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. I would say, that yeah. for me, that would be. Can I just say to you, sir, that um, there is a book written on Hammerschild in the area of human rights, and he called in the human rights director. And he said, Mr. Humphrey, there is a speed below which an aircraft will no longer stay in the air. I'd like you to keep the human rights program with this minimum of flights. <laughs> 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 Hammerschel was a bit of a megalomaniac. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. which Kofi Annan does not appear to have been. Kofi Annan was not a deep thinker, Tom. No, no, that's why he needed to surround himself with smart people. But whether you're a deep thinker or a lousy thinker, having people around who disagree with you is really important, I think. And being able to have your ego not threatened by having 
people to disagree with you. And for, for instance, at the current moment, you know, it's a group of psychophants around us. But he was, he was smart enough to realize he needed to surround yes. himself. Yeah. Well, so Zuma. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, but to be fair to Confucius. Using the Aristotle dialect, there's been speculation. Do you, do you actually, some people think that it was organized because of his involved with the Congo crisis, that it wasn't just accidental when you died in an air crash. I don't know whether. The UN has just opened an inquiry into this because Brian Urquhart, in his biography of Hamshel, says that the indisputable fact is that the path traveled by the aircraft cut a swathe of the trees, the top of the trees. But now I've read in the papers that there is new evidence that's come out that he was assassinated and the UN has opened an investigation into it. I haven't seen the results. There's actually a really good book by, I forget, Williams. Is it Susan? It's a yeah. British yeah. academic yeah. Yeah. that really dug up some interesting right. dirt. And it's on that basis that it was impossible not to recompete. Yeah. But what's uh, what was the conclusion? Uh, that all of the circumstantial evidence points toward an assassination. Yes. This was a podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. Thank you for listening. <laughs>